0: Greetings, human instrumentality podlings. Joseph here with a quick update before this bonus episode. Ian and I are hard at work on season two, Satoshi Kone's Bizarre Adventure, and it's going to be coming your way shortly. In the meantime, we thought we'd give you a little more bonus Evangelion content during this little break. The following episode is a collaboration with the Requiem Metal Podcast. If you've never listened to them, they do in-depth histories of heavy metal bands. Their coverage is intimately researched and incredibly insightful. They're one of my favorite podcasts out there. We collaborated with them on an episode about the band Discordance Access. For those of you who don't know... Discordance Axis is a critically acclaimed grindcore band who drew from Neon Genesis Evangelion for many of their lyrics. The collaboration with the Requiem guys took so long that it's been chopped into two separate episodes. Uh, So what follows is the first episode in that two-part conversation, Just so everyone's aware, my audio does cut out at one point in time during one of these episodes. So just be aware of that. Don't worry. I'm perfectly safe. Uh, The other thing to note is that if you've never listened to Grindcore or never listened to Discordance Axis, it is very extreme music. So if you're not a super hardcore metalhead like I am, uh, don't worry there's plenty of conversation and good content to be had, but the first thing you're about to hear is going to be some music and it's going to be very loud and very abrasive and I love it. And I hope you do too. Thanks. Here's us and the Requiem Metal Podcast.
1: Just heard "Jigsaw" from Discordance Axis, "Inalienable," "Dreamless" from the year two thousand. This is the Requiem Metal Podcast. I'm Mark,
2: and I am Jason, and uh, we are venturing far away from from Doom territory where we were last time. Mark with Typo Negative and then all that sort of stuff last and- year. Yeah, last year, officially. Uh, this episode was actually meant to be um, recorded in December, but we, we had some some different things kind of going on and, and just kind of said, let's uh, let's push past the holidays, give ourselves a little bit of a mental break. I think the Doom series probably exhausted both of us quite a bit in, in good ways, you know, in a satisfactory kind of way. Yeah, and, uh, it became
1: more than we thought and in yeah. a great way.
2: It grew into a behemoth, uh, yes. a leviathan, if you will. And um, yeah, and so here we are. And um, we've actually been talking about trying... To do this episode for a while um, with our good friends Joseph and Ian, um, and those those two guys who will introduce here in one second, had to patiently wait for our Doom series that just kept getting bigger and bigger and longer and longer. And so, um, but here we are, better late than never. And so let's uh, let's bring in uh, Ian Corey and Joseph Schaefer uh, from Human Instrumental Instrumentality uh, Podcast. Uh, welcome, gentlemen. Well, hello. hello. So tell us Good to uh, be back. yeah yeah Joseph, uh, for a long time, Requiem listeners, Joseph's been on several episodes, little like audio clips and, and different things and we've read some of his letters and stuff and then you co-hosted the tribulation episode with us as well.
0: It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, I'm happy to be back this time with audio in both channels, I think. and oh, yeah yeah with, hopefully with me not like interrupting you guys quite so much. Um, I managed to take my medication early this morning, so I'm not quite so Adderalled out. Uh, So this should be good. This
2: might be the first time, Mark, that we've tried to weave four at once. So this is really up in our game in 2022.
1: Yeah, we'll see. Fingers crossed.
2: (laughs) Fingers crossed. We'll fix it in the end So tell us, tell us guys a little bit about your podcast for people that might not know. And then what in the heck this has to do with, you know, Grindcore and Discordance Axis and and all this kind of crazy weirdness.
3: Uh, So we host a podcast, the Human Instrumentality Podcast, uh, whose first season was entirely dedicated to the uh, cult anime hit from the mid to late 1990s called Neon Genesis Evangelion. Um, which just recently kind of was wrapped up in full through this like series of movies that were also released in the States. It was kind of the thing that like, if you were a real weirdo in the two thousands, you may have like come across, but has since become sort of like a big mainstream thing, Uh, It got, you know, put up on Netflix and has, you know, kind of grown in popularity. So Joseph and I being longtime fans of the series thought like, Oh, we should get together and help like break down this incredibly weird TV show for, this new audience that's kind of just coming to it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I want to tell you that I will probably mispronounce Evangelion seven different ways this episode. It's oh, just that's, found out. That's after, the
3: true right? Ava experience. Okay, like i have that... <laughs> yeah, known
2: for. Is before, mispronunciation. So. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I this... think I heard John Chang say it like three different ways. And every time he said it a different way, I was like second guessing like everything about myself. I was like, am I hearing him <laughs> like differently or, or whatever? So, um, yeah, and so where Joseph, where's where's John Chang and Discordance Axis and this kind of crazy legendary cult grind band fit into to you know Japanese animation stuff?
0: Well, so Discordance Axis is one of these bands that uh, has had much like Evangelion, this fervent, passionate, dedicated underground following within the metal community specifically but i think also sometimes in the punk community um they're a very like offbeat emotional band that got a lot of critical acclaim when they were releasing stuff and uh in a weird mirror to evangelion the series um the most of the music became almost entirely legally unavailable in the United States for a long time. Uh, Willow Tip Records is only just now beginning to reissue their back catalog, specifically their like magnum opus, so to speak, album, The Inalienable Dreamless. Um, which and- is really kind of the focus of our episode will be centered kind
2: of around that record in particular. You know. It's short
0: enough that we're probably going to play most of it, <laughs> not quite all of it, but most of it. Um, but th- the the through line is that Evangelion, the series is a lyrical and aesthetic focus in in that album in particular, but also in the career of Discord and Saxis' vocalist, John Chang, who's gone on to be behind the mic in this like series of super, very uh, naughty uh, cutting with a K cutting yeah. it. Yeah. Like th- quote unquote, thinking man's grind. I guess, I guess you could call it, um, you know, but more deeply, I think the reason Ian and I wanted to do an entire podcast about Ava and our, our second season is not going to be completely about Evangelion or, or even mostly, um, but it, it's this show that has this, deep emotional resonance with a certain kind of people who watch it like I don't know what the proportion is maybe like one in four one in five people who watch it just cling to it Um, Um, the the, the way I think about it is you know I know that you and Mark and and like like X-Men are these properties properties. that like were like formative experiences for you guys I don't have that with those properties i have that with evangelion um and, and i think john chang kind of does too
2: yeah uh, that seems to be the vibe i got from talking to him too yeah
0: so i mean we should talk about the band but you know for our listeners who are listening that's that's why we're talking about this band and i think Correct me if, if you think otherwise, Ian, but I think there's these weird like emotional and narrative parallels between like the arc of John Chang and the arc of Hideaki Anno, the, totally. the creator of Evangelion. Um, They're they're weird like kindred creators in some ways.
3: Yeah, it's interesting when you were talking about how uh, there's a similarity in terms of the fan base for both Discordance Axis and Evangelion. I was also thinking how similar... Uh, the sort of emotional arc of going from Discordance Axis to Gridlink kind of feels like going from the original Neon Genesis Evangelion TV series to the movies that then came out about like a decade and a half later. Uh, And so you can sort of track that same through line, specifically thinking with like the lyrics in Discordance Axis versus the ones in in Gridlink. And you can sort of see this like really turned into itself like introspective really emotional really like metaphorically layered lyrical approach that by the last grid link record has kind of become much more directly emotional and is kind of like much more plain spoken in its language and you can tell in chang's lyrics that like he's not just incorporating evangelion but he's also got references to gundam and to like all these like bullet hell video games and stuff so you, okay can... dick
2: is a big big one for him too that we'll talk mm-hmm. about Yep.
3: Yeah, you can. T- I saw some Neuromancer in there too when I was just looking over the lyrics earlier today. And it, one of the things that struck me is like a big part of Anno's style as a filmmaker is like interrogating a lot of the media that he's consumed. And I feel like Chang is doing a similar thing of like reusing the images of the art that he resonates with and then like taking it and using it for his own poetic purposes. Like the songs are not about events that happen in neon Genesis Evangelion, but he's using it almost as like shorthand to evoke these experiences that are, uh, I think like as someone who also really likes neon Genesis Evangelion, I immediately get what he's going for when he's like referencing specific plot points or, you know, characters from the show. It, almost works like he's like drawing from the same canon as I am as a listener.
0: Right. I think there's also one more similarity in that is that we get into this in the beginning of our, of our podcast. If anyone would like to listen, if any Requiem fans have not indulged, please feel free. Um, You know, our first episode is breaking down the context of the specific anime genre that Evangelion, is in conversation with, um, Evangelion is uh, a mecha show. It's about giant robots fighting monsters in a very, it's very abstract sense, but at least in the first half in particular, that's like what it's about. But part of the project of the show is the, the creator, Hideaki Yano, taking these things that meant a lot to him when he was a kid, um, Gundam, Battleship Yamato. I would say Robotech, except he was one of the animators on Robotech. Um, so that's not his childhood. That's shit he actually did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's it's him taking those influences and refracting them into something new and unique that challenges the source material while also honoring it. And I think that's also what Discordance Axis does to Napalm Death yeah, or yeah. Repulsion. Yeah. totally yes and you can hear that in jigsaw which yes. is like audibly a grind song but sounds like almost if you like were to print like napalm death on like a, a sheet of glass like a vinyl if like if, if you could have like a sheet of glass that played the vinyl if they just hit it with a hammer and pasted it together wrong and played <laughs> it that's like the sense you get from listening to to that song which yeah, has that's... like a resonance with the title right yeah. sure yeah and i even said that it,
2: it i said it's kind of you know rob martin the guitar player he, he sort of i said he forms a hypnotic textured canvas uh for John's spastic kind of screams to be sort of splatter painted and that gives it like you said that shattering kind of jigsaw sort of quality and i just said you know dave witt's drums do you guys say wit or witty it's
3: witty is it witty I believe it's I witty Okay,
2: yeah, I just I, I wanted to get my mispronunciation out of the way
0: early. You
3: know, so. <laughs> if you're playing Requiem Bingo at home, there you exactly,
0: go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's okay, but, there's nothing more purely Ava fan than mispronouncing everyone's everything. name <laughs> multiple times. To- so don't. It's okay. Yeah, it's we're, gonna happen. It's gonna. We're happen. We're synthesizing the fan experiences together right now.
2: But I think like his drumming in, in particular, in this song, to me, it's like this uh, this utterly bizarre combination of sort of like this like syncopated polyrhythms of like king crimson with like pete sandoval like world downfall or something like that it's like what the you know this kind of start stop prog tension that he's sort of doing and then like you know it all converges around this kind of martin riff in the last 25 seconds and i just said it builds to this kind of steamroll and i said the the ending blast and i'm glad you brought up the sort of shattering of glass jigsaw puzzle because i literally wrote these in my notes a month and a half ago i said the ending blast is a jackson pollock masterpiece so yeah, whatever that is. And that's, that's what you're getting here, you know, but they are a, they are a fascinating band and it's a band I listened to back when this came out, but I put it away. You know, I, I never became like a diehard. I liked it cause I knew it was on Hydra head. I was kind of peripherally into grind a bit and I obviously knew who, who Dave was from human remains and some other things, but I never went like deep, deep down into a lot of like, you know, the, the, crevices of of grind uh maybe as much as maybe you guys did or even mark first pers- perhaps um and well, i certainly did this
1: come out on like a dvd format yeah
2: it's a dvd box yeah yeah absolutely.
1: that's it stood out and it was you know at that time there's so much stuff like you know that that whole like new i guess newish hardcore that was coming out at that point um yeah this, this was, was kind of, of like thrown in we there were... but didn't really fit
2: yeah we were kind of like right you know, bathing and like converge and cave in and some of those kind of things around this time. And I don't know if I knew how to fit it into that equation. Cause that's where my brain was going with this sort of like hyper speed emotive kind of stuff. And, and I, I don't know if I had the means to sort of like penetrate it. And I also didn't know about like the, the Eva background or any of the Philip K Dick or, you know, um, it just, I don't know. It was kind of one of those yeah. albums that washed over me. And I i always heard it talked about. I remember when the Hall of Fame uh, issue of Decibel came out and I was like, oh, I have this. I'll pull it out again. And I listened to it and I was like, oh, this is cool. But then again, I put it back away. You know, it was just sort of one of those records that until we do an episode like this, where I, I kind of go into the deep dive and suddenly like the magic is revealed to me. And I was like, oh, I fucking get it. I get why people like lose their shit over this or why people call this, you know, what grind 3.0, or, you know, there's all these kind of different things that people sort of, you know, talk about with this record or with this band, you know? Yeah.
1: I think the whole grind, like grind 3.0 thing also was like, okay, I, I already think I know what it is. So I, I didn't really like. <laughs> didn't pursue you know, give it, it as much. Yeah. Cause the first like two waves were great, but you know, you get to be a, a certain age and you just kind of dismiss stuff because you think you understand, you know, Oh, I've heard grind. This is just kids doing it. But it's definitely yeah. its own thing.
2: Yeah. And I, again, it's weird because we say kids, but yet, like, you know, these are guys that were in bands in the late 80s, early 90s. And, you know what I mean? Like, they're well, D- they, yeah, right.
1: like 50. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
2: um, but yeah, it is this sort of weird distillation of, like you said, napalm death and repulsion and, and some of the lessons of, like, you know, the previous waves and generations of grind, but almost like purified in a way. Um,
1: well, kind of like as Pig Destroyer did kind of like boiled it down to its essence. There's no base.
2: Yeah. I mean? Yeah. Although Pig Destroyer is obviously doing something different with the, the electronic and thrash elements, I guess I would say. But yeah, there's they're, there's they're, definitely yeah, something it's
1: not it's not the seventy five percent blast, twenty percent thrash, yes. and five percent slow parts. Five <laughs> percent slow parts. You're
0: <laughs> already bringing in the, the John Chang ideal grind formula. I love um, it so much.
3: This is like <laughs> I mean, who, who among us hasn't thought about something like this when we listen to like a hardcore record or a grind record where like you know that there's only so many different ingredients that you can mix together like at a certain point you're like well what is the perfect balance of those ingredients and this guy actually went and figured it out for himself a different formula
1: this formula is actually accurate yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not like hyperbolic
2: the, it's like the kernel secret recipe here it is yeah. you know we've got it for you it's, and it's, it's interesting too, like
0: geometry, right? Like it's yeah. almost like a platonic. He's trying to sketch like the con shell over the fucking fractal. Like he's trying to be like, there is supreme order to the universe, and that <laughs> order is grind. Yeah, um, <laughs> real, sort of what, real uh, galaxy brain grind. <laughs> This
2: is what Tool's been trying to do with like the Fibonacci sequence shit for like the last (laughs) twenty years or whatever. But you know, here it is. John Chang actually pulled it off. The golden ratio or whatever. The beautiful
3: part is you can listen to one discordance axis in the amount of time it takes you to listen to uh, one discordance axis album in the time that it takes you to listen to one Tool song. Oh, for sure. Much more efficient, you know.
2: Yeah, they're very efficient. I mean, I joke that on their second record uh, they became like a prog band because on *Ulterior* they do twenty-three songs in seventeen minutes, but it's a prog-like. Twenty songs in eighteen minutes on their uh, their second record, so I mean,
4: you
2: know, they're getting a little, a little a little fat. They need to trim on that second record for these guys, you know. So, but I'd but I mean, how.
4: yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> But um, the the thing that you know, I guess I should mention before we venture too much further in is we did have an opportunity to to speak with uh, John um this week, and it was a really. <laughs> pretty mind-blowing interview he went into all kinds of weird directions and stuff like that and so throughout our episode he'll be kind of like you know sprinkling in his his collective wisdoms and and things like that but you know with in terms of the origin of the band or the origin of john since he's kind of a little bit of the focus because we're looking at some of his bands that he's part of um as the linking kind of agent here or as the grid link as they say (laughs) um yeah, I'm a teacher. I'm full of, like, bad puns because I have to, like, entertain teenagers, so. Um, but he kind of talks about, you know, going from, like, punk and, and you know, early grind stuff and, and ca- encountering, like, you know, fear emptiness, or not fear emptiness, uh, from enslavement to obliteration and then the peel sessions, Napalm. And in the interview, he goes, and then I fucking heard Repulsion. And he was like, I didn't, I realized everything I liked of these other bands was just being taken from Repulsion. And so, like, you know, it is... That's like the beginning point. And then I kind of told him about, you know, we're, we're Michigan guys. And we, you know, we know Scott and he was like, he was kind of super excited about that. And yeah, it was, it was cool. But that was really for him. He didn't discover repulsion until after napalm, but he's kind of gone backwards and said, like, that's the epitome right there. That's, that's it. That's the. That's the ratio, you know, if if you will, I guess. So Right.
3: Going back to the source to find like what that perfect ratio is makes a lot of sense. Like what was this idea when it first arrived in music and how can I like take that forward? But then also clearly like his bands have all added their own spin on what they do with that formula since then. Yeah. And one of
2: the things I don't want to ruin it too much, because I'll let John kind of speak for himself, but he really talked about like um, Rain and Blood for quite a while. Mm -hmm. That was like kind of his gateway sort of into the extreme in a lot of ways. And just the sort of idea that Slayer took a lot of the fat out of Show No Mercy and and Hell Awaits and purified it down on that kind of almost gave him the idea of what he was going to do with like the rest of his musical kind of career. You know, it's to take that kind of idea or their ideology into everything else he was going to do. And I thought, hey, you know, as a Slayer guy, like I, I get that, you know, so that that was pretty cool because
0: that's sorry. Go
2: on. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, because, I, you know, when you hear like Jigsaw, the first thing that jumps out is not Slayer. You know what I mean? Like that's right. not your initial yeah. thought. But but to know that that was sort of the beginning of this idea, it's kind of cool.
0: Well, I was going to say that's sort of funny because Jigsaw actually has a lot of structural similarity to the song "Raining Blood."
2: Mm, yeah,
0: like it—it it begins with sort of like atmosphere, and then like concentrated chaos. And then the second half of it, is—is is this locked groove that sort of provides you with like catharsis, but also amps you up, um, which is kind of funny because you know he, I. I started, I first heard Discordance Axis at a similar time to when I first heard Rain and Blood, Mm -hmm. which is weird. I mean, can I tell a little narrative to hope you guys don't mind? Yeah. Okay. On the off chance that he's actually listening to this. So here's how I discovered Discordance Axis is I was in, I think, probably freshman year of high school. So I'd heard Rain and Blood before then, but not much before and there was this kid at my school who was the the best guitarist not just in my school but in like the city like everyone knew this this guy his name's Toledo Pat, Toledo Ohio okay, his name's very... Pat Peltier shout out to you Pat Peltier um, <laughs> and I I remember meeting him because he got kicked out of school for wearing a motorhead hammered shirt and like the next day <laughs> it was like I was like why would they kick you out for a shirt this is hammered
2: the naivety of a ninth grader yeah i was so
0: naive i didn't i didn't realize but he was like he was like hey you like metallica are you into like extreme metal and i was like oh i i don't know i'm more of like an iron maiden guy dude uh i don't know and he's like wait here i'm gonna burn you a cd tomorrow i'm like okay so he burns me this i I actually only just threw it away this horrible like cdr that had on it um dillinger escape plan Mm Mm-hmm. Converge, no cave in. I just actually had the chance to uh, fact check this, um, but it also had like circle takes the square. Um, I think maybe a glass jaw song. <laughs> it had pig destroyer on it, and and it's it's interesting that you 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 bring up that this was sort of lumped in with this sort of like the math core boom, or or I guess like what kids now would call Scronk. Is this like the Scronk school? Okay. Is, that, is that a real term? I, I haven't actually that. heard that. Yeah. Uh, well, I,
3: I've like Math Core has become like kind of like uh, DeRigor again. So I feel like Skronk was like the thing that you would say about bands that had Math Core parts but were not Math Core bands. And now like they're just straight up 2001 sounding Math Core bands all over the place again, which is. I weird. heard
2: Dillinger referred to as Calculus Core once and I kind of fucking love that. But yeah. you know, I don't know. <laughs> the alliteration. Yeah. I like that yeah.
1: too. Yeah. It's so like she, a more
2: advanced version you know
0: <laughs> well i mean you, you, there are scronks in discord i mean when i think of a scronk, i think of like the it's probably like a diminished chord or like a, a flat second or something yep. and, you pick, yeah. and you up pick right okay. it's like a heavily distorted epic the, that's the, the immediately skronk.
3: followed by like a low open note that like exactly jump, that like really like insane jump up and down in tone is what i think of when i think of like skronk music
0: mm-hmm. and that's in pig destroyer too so like that this is sort of like my window in to grind too um because i i'd never really explored napalm death up to that point i was gonna say were you guys
2: were you into carcass or napalm or any of that stuff at this point or was that like a backwards journey that you were about Uh, to undertake for me
0: all that came later like my first grind band was actually and I'm sorry that I'm going to say this word so often in this podcast. Um, My first grind band was anal cut. Oh, yeah. yeah um, no, that's fine. Yeah. Well, and, and it's perfectly fine. It. First grind band. <laughs> sort of. But it's also like a joke, right? Sure, for for, sure. for whether or not you think the joke is funny. Like I can't take like it, I didn't think of like grind as something that was to be taken seriously. Like I thought of the briefness and the fastness as like a gag. Sure. right mm-hmm. i mean yes. i can't they're tell you the amount the of same
1: way they're goofy there's nothing sure. serious about anything i'm horrified
0: i mean they're not sure
2: but i can tell you the times in ninth grade when we found the ac record used at, at new moon and i just like looked at the song titles and i saw <laughs> Liv- living color is my favorite black metal band and i i just ah, damn i it. couldn't stop giggling i was just like I, you know, and I barely knew what black metal was at that point. I, I just kind of like dipped my toe in, but I got that joke and I was like, Jesus. That's... Well, and
1: live, live, they were so <laughs> confrontational. Um, yeah. I remember right. seeing him in New York with uh, with Brutal Truth. And Seth was hitting people in the head with a mic stand and just pissing that guy off. And he ends up stopping and getting in a fight. Like, <laughs> you know, I was like, what was I, 21 or something, I think. And I was just like, what the fuck? You know, these guys are fucking i didn't really care it wasn't about the music it was about you know how, how crazy and you know at yeah. the top just like how dillinger when they first started playing people couldn't fucking believe that you know swinging guitars around and jumping around and well i've told about the that. ribs yeah. yeah well i've, I've told <laughs> right. about my,
2: the milwaukee metal fest experience of not knowing who dillinger was because it was before under the running board came out and sure as shit like we were at the grindcore bar with mika from uh impaled nazarene watching like oh God. Of- yeah we were just eating pickles because he was getting bloody mary's and he was just giving us extra pickles and so i'm eating pickles with mika because you know whatever and dillinger got up there and they're fucking chucking chairs at us and shit and i was like this is insane i loved it but i was scared for my life and i was never like i didn't grow up in like punk clubs so i wasn't used to that aspect of it i mean i knew about machine but i was like whoa this this is different you know and John, in the interview that you'll hear, he'll tell this great story of, uh, I think, playing in Japan and just getting the shit kicked out of him by a guy that ran on stage and basically knocked him out.
3: Wow. You know? And he's bleeding. Surprisingly for, for Japan. Yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. like not the cliche. No, Japanese. exactly. Yeah, you like, like, yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't, we'll get into it. When we start talking about like Japan's relationship to punk, I, I don't know if it's, it probably seems surprising but I actually don't think that's all that unusual. Um, There's, there's like a history of violence in like Japanese hardcore. Mm. Um, But just to zero in on something Mark said, you know, like I think the confrontational aspect is also there in discordance axis. Right. But, but like you said, like, it'll come with sort of in a way not about the music right whereas like discordance axis and pig destroyer to me are like the two bands that like it it really was about the music and like i know this isn't like discordance axis quote but like what's the thing everyone thinks about when you think pig destroyer you think this is beautiful this is art like that is like an ethos they they took really to heart and i think shang does like i think discordance axis is in a way like if anal cunt" was not a joke and it was not just trying to be provocative it was like no dude these are my feelings i'm making jackson pollock this is yeah. fucking art mm-hmm. like and it also just sounds like me taking a like sandpaper to your brain yeah but it's but it is interesting because you know we can discredit
2: you know ac a little bit i mean i don't pull out ac records that much you know they have their place but they had a huge influence on John. John was really mm-hmm. good friends with Seth. And mm-hmm. he talks about it in the interview a little bit that you'll hear. And he says, like, Seth's attitude and opinions of a lot of bands colored John's opinions of a lot of bands. You know, like, John never liked Brutal Truth, even their early stuff, because Seth hated Brutal Truth so much because he had to beef <laughs> with them. You know,
1: and that's it's not to, they like. Played the, what if that was after I saw them? Yeah, beef. yeah,
2: yeah. So I mean I don't and again, and John, John doesn't have any beef with, with Brutal Truth or whatever, but he said he never really got into them as much, probably because he hung out with Seth. And in fact, you know, there's some kind of quotes we have here about like where he got some of his vocal style. And he basically says, I used to practice and develop my chops by driving around my car and blasting SOB records and just screaming along with them. During the day, the apartment building I lived in would basically be empty, and I would just turn the stereo up and start screaming along with it. That's basically how I learned to get to the starting point. And he said, for years, I was really good friends with Seth from AC, and I was really good friends with Totson from SOB. And we used to talk about this shit all the time. We'd ask, how do you sing? How do you do this? How do you do that? And we'd try and figure out how to do it better. Seth had a whole thing where he'd stick his hand under his arm while singing because he said that for him, it was basically his positive chi. He never said it that way, of course. That's how I would express what he was trying to say. That's what his body had to do to generate that sound. I did it for a while, too, and it really worked. Ultimately, it boils down to being organic with your body language. That's how I figured out how to do those vocals. One of the reasons I used to jump around and do so much crazy stuff live was to keep my body relaxed. can't do all that shit and be tense so many things come down to relaxation fighting playing guitar playing blast meets on drums etc so so you know there is a seth connection obviously there because those guys were hanging out and he was obviously having an influence on what john was going to do with his vocals and stuff so you know yeah yeah for sure i don't think any of us are huge i can't speak for for you guys but i don't know if mark and i are like huge ac guys but they're part of that. You know, they were part of that early American grind scene. Yeah, you know? I mean,
1: they have their, their place, but I never really pull out, you know, maybe <laughs> yeah. morbid florists every once in a while just for some reason. I don't know. Just because yeah, they're making it's... fun of Will Romer. <laughs> right. That's true.
0: No. We, we like to tease Mortician more than AC on this podcast. <laughs> These these bands make fun of themselves, although I don't see AC having this weird resurgence with like weightlifter dudes that Mortician has. Yeah, that's um, true. That's true. Oops. But there there is that there is that um, through line though with with like the I don't know like the Space Condor vocals like and I know we've got to actually talk about the being of the band pretty soon because we do have music to listen to but like that is probably the first thing that that jumps out. When you listen to discord and Saxus's
3: super wow, high vocals
0: yeah. those are some high screeches bro
3: right yeah. like it almost sounds more like danny filth at times than like your average like punk vocalist or something like that i i know that that's probably a comparison that would make most Discord and Saxis fans cringe but <laughs> like if you're just talking in terms of range of delivery it's like really really high up there you know it's like the fact that he could also do those super low growls too is like whoa like, where where are you getting, like, both of these vocal ranges from? It's unbelievable. I think the thing that you you
2: bring up, though, like, that was something I kind of heard um, Jacob Bannon doing, like, on Jane Doe mm-hmm. sometimes, you know? Yeah. So, like, it didn't freak me out that much or surprise me because that was my context at that time. You know what I mean? I was kind of associating them with, with bands like what Converge was starting to do. And I don't know if you heard that on the early Converge, but he certainly started to do it on Jane Doe, you know?
3: Yeah, for as long as he could. I mean, it, yeah. Listen to his vocals now, and it's clear he like can't really do that anymore. But, them out. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's it's
0: bad form. Don't do <laughs> the horny eagle thing. The <laughs> horny eagle.
2: Is that a? Is <laughs> that a... Okay. <laughs>
3: um, it's just like bringing up converge again. It's it's funny because like Joseph, I I had almost the exact same introduction to Discordance axis, like my friend who was also into like all of the. Like late '90s, early 2000s metalcore stuff and like extreme metal. He like saw me as like a Slipknot fan at summer camp and was like, "You should listen to some heavier shit." And got me on all of that stuff. And I had the same sort of reaction where I, I got super into Converge, but uh, when I first heard the Scorn and Saxon, I was like, "Eh, like where are the songs?" I, I had like a totally like not not for me reaction at first, and it wasn't until like much later that I had more context for the older grind bands like napalm death and repulsion and all that, that I heard what discordance access were like adding to the conversation that yeah. I then was like, Oh, these guys are on some holy other shit. Like this is, this is really brilliant in its own right.
2: Mark. I know at relapse when you were there, you were kind of there right at like peak grindcore kind of conversations probably happening in the office. Was anybody talking about the, this band at all? Did they ever come up or did you ever hear? No, he was, he that?
1: was uh, 96. So like human remains was huge shit like okay dave was kind of grooming himself to be like the fastest blast beat most consistent like blast beat drummer there was he wanted to be the fastest drummer and but when you see him play he's completely you know going back to what john was saying completely relaxed Mm -hmm. but i don't remember hearing much about those guys at all
2: yeah they were definitely not on my radar screen until you know inalienable but um i knew human remains uh drew dealman was actually really into human remains he somehow got a hold of that that's a Mount Pleasant reference for for our Requiem fans but it was a that was like an odd record that Drew Dealman just like introduced to me one day cuz he was a Fugazi guy pretty much you know so um but yeah so i think we're i think you're right let's uh let's kind of jump kind of back into it a little bit basically um sorry i'm looking at my notes we were we were all over the place you know basically these guys kind of start with um what was i going to say oh they start when... Oh my God, I, I lost my notes completely. Go ahead, guys. Pave the way for... where the This kind of all starts at a Human Remains show and another show where they all kind of start meeting up at Elite Billiards. That's where it is, right? And that's, that's kind of correct. when John what's that and john and uh rob kind of basically form a band first called sedition right with another drummer and that's kind of how it all sort of starts to evolve and we're talking what 91 ish i think 92 ish. 92 okay and and that's kind of what puts them on the map i i can't remember the story exactly but there's some conversation that happens after the human remain show where they invite dave to be in the band is that kind of how it goes down
3: That's what I'm seeing in our notes here, too. But, Joseph, you put them together, so I I trust you on this one.
0: That's my understanding of the general formation. Like a lot of these – well, first of all, it's interesting to note that they start in 92. So not – you know, they're four years out, five years out from Scum, right? Yeah. And, like, this is still – they're still starting out doing this when grind is, like, a first wave – thing but it takes them a while to to sort of get spun up as a band i think in in part because you can't really do it without dave witty and he had other projects going and like rob martin's such a creative guitarist but human remains was like the band i think at the beginning it was hard for them to get traction because a lot of people still didn't think of grind as metal quote unquote and also that like you, you know, like uh, Human Remains is the main band. Like, I think people sure. saw Discordance Axis as the weird Human Remains grind course side. Dave's a little side
2: band. project of some sort. You know, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: right. Um, but they do do their first album, Ulterior, in 95. I think it's 95 or six. Yeah. yeah. Correct. Uh, so, and I think they have like a few EPs before then. I There was a lot of
2: splits and seven inches and different things. Like if you look into the, the back catalog of what they were kind of doing, you know, very
0: typically punk, very typically yes. grind core, right? We're going to do a million like little tiny things before we actually do anything. So their first split with dystopia is 1992. They work with Capcas, capitalist casualties, sorry, local boys, um, hell child, deaf master who I've never heard. And then finally, Ulteriors in 1995
2: yeah their debut and I think one of the things that's really interesting about these guys beyond just the the each musician you know in in John's interview he'll mention that these guys never hung out it was very much kind of like a, a a project type job like they were not not really friends but they all knew that they could come together and do magic together and then kind of go their separate ways and so I feel like this is one of those bands that's more of like um an ideology or philosophy in a sense. And like, I think it centers around that sort of golden ratio kind of conversation we were having before in that like John sees grind uh, and discordance access in a sense as like this punishing kind of discomfort thing that he's got to sort of work through. It's almost like meditative catharsis in a way Um, in the midst of all this kind of speed and, and chaos and stuff. And it's almost his like method of confronting the sort of complexities of the human endeavor and, you know, he's he's kind of striving for this uninhabitable kind of, you know, liminal space. And, and in a sense, I don't see Discordance Axis as that different from, you know, like Free Jazz or Noise or some of the things like Tony Conrad did or, you know, hell, even Neurosis, you know, for, for some kind of things in that, like, you can reach this meditative state through sort of like noise and chaos and speed and... I don't know that. And I think that plays into like sort of what what he's trying to do here. And I'm not saying he does it on ulterior, but it's like what he's ultimately trying to achieve is this sort of like this is like a painful experience to create this music. And for all the guys, you know, he talks about how Dave had to quit drinking three or four months before they would record records because the physicality of it Mm. was so impactful on Dave that Dave could basically had to go into training and Dave was miserable. He hated it. You know, that's why they didn't play live shows and shit is because it's like, they all like ideology. They're like, you know, it's almost like John was like saying, all right, you know, I'm the cult leader. This is what we have to do in order to achieve this goal. We all know what we got to do and the sacrifices we need to do to get to this place. And we're going to get there. And then once we get there, we got to fucking go our separate ways. Cause we don't really like each other. And it was painful to do all this and then let's do it again in a couple years which is like different than most band stories that we we've told on Requiem and and things like that, where there's, there's some kind of cohesiveness or a tour that follows, or, you know, that didn't really happen too much with these guys, except for, you know, a couple little ventures in Japan and and stuff like that.
3: I think you can almost hear that in the way that they sound sometimes in that, like, you could take each part of like uh, the vocals, the guitar or the drums and write vastly different of the other parts around it like the drums are like a, as you are so punishingly physical and so fast and so often the guitar parts against them are like weirdly pretty like in jigsaw like so much of those guitar parts are like using these like extended harmonies and a lot of their parts almost sound more like screamo guitar parts than grindcore guitar right. parts yes uh, and like add onto that like john chang's particular vocal style and his like very specific lyrical points of reference and it's like you you'd have to roll the dice so many times to get this exact combination of elements and sometimes it doesn't quite sound like it all lines up even in the songs itself but i think that's what makes it like so like that's what gives it that layer of like free jazz or neurosian transcendence that you're talking about where in order to really vibe with the music, you kind of have to accept the chaos and kind of sit in it instead of like trying to latch on to like a hook or some kind of like physical groove that you're going to lock into. It's more about like things being more than the sum of their parts in in some way.
1: Well, I think that jazz comparison is pretty, pretty apt because if you try to listen this, like looking for hooks, you're came to the wrong band, but it's, it's interesting because they're also playing stuff like the guitar will be half speed drums are just blasting way too fast for what Mm -hmm. you might think would be the normal, you know, uh, marrying of those two ideas. And then the vocals just kind of weave in and out of all that's totally, if you listen to this kind of as a jazz record, I think it makes more sense. I agree. And And very
3: much in like the John Zorn kind of lane of jazz, not so much like straight ahead jazz or like, I guess maybe like the Coltrane constellation kind of, kind of vibe. It's free jazz emotionally. Yeah, 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 definitely
2: the three jazz stuff. I even made a John Zorn Naked City reference later in the episode. And I kind of it said it's like Naked City, but without like the like free jazz, which makes it almost more terrifying, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. like, you know, but like I think it's interesting, too. I I found this um, interview that Dave did in 2010. I think it's from Metal Sucks, and he talks about how they right. wrote together And he says, Rob and I had this really strange connection when we play together. We jam and end up stopping together a lot in the same place, kind of like we knew what each other were thinking. The early stuff was pretty easy to write. It's basically connect the dot type stuff. We actually wrote out notes that read grind times four, slayer times six, grind times eight, slayer times four. It was pretty funny. Um, John would then have to hand it it have a hand in that too and would offer his nay or yay which was usually nay quite a bit Uh, later later though with uh inalienable rob and i wrote songs that we thought john wouldn't like uh and he'd be like oh man this is gonna be funny he's going to hate it uh because it wasn't straight ahead grind at the time but he actually wound up liking that stuff rob would write the outline and shell of the song and i'd put the drums in following his guitar parts it was fun so it's kind of a weird way of of writing this idea like, okay, we're going to do like four parts grind, six parts slayer, you know, I thought that was really like interesting. I, I've never heard a band talk about it in that sort of way before, you know
0: i don't know what you're talking about isn't that just music theory i mean ian would know better than me but isn't that just what you do metallica riff times one that's how bach wrote yes
3: well actually i was going to mention like if you look at like the dream theater uh song charts they 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 look like that
4: you know where it's
3: like king crimson riff times three uh like gentle giant variation and then like you know, watered down Metallica riff times four with. Yeah. Re- re- Recycled yeah. Recycle,
2: <laughs> pull me under times 20. Yeah, um,
0: exactly. Metropolis
2: yeah. part eight and let's just go with it. Yeah. So and
0: I'd then, love to, I'd love to have those guys try to work with John Chang. Oh, oh God. God. Can you, yeah. can you imagine let's just take the least <laughs> tolerable human beings in all music and just stick them in a room together no hey, comment you know no comment I, remember famously the thing that like put dream theater on the map for a lot
2: of people in the extreme metal scene was he was wearing a napalm shirt and uh barney was always wearing the dream theater shirt so, right so maybe maybe that's the dream project that just never really happened you know so um i mean i think i think we can all agree dream theater needs a little napalm in their life that would probably be about the best thing that could happen to a band like uh, you say
3: that but the one dream theater song with blast beats is no bueno so oh
2: uh, what song is that i it's i only to remember
3: member off of uh what is it uh black skies and silver linings is that oh. what it's called I, I you're you're talking to a former music school kid okay, so i know okay. my dreams i exit
2: rampant well. change of seasons
0: that was about the last smart one move kind of,
3: yeah
4: so.
0: jason but, you triggered his his trap uh, card he yeah. knows as much about dream theater as i do about metallica <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think the other thing that's interesting from uh, how the band sounds is that there's no bassist, you know, and, mm. and John said, I, you know, the quote from decibel was I felt that bass was always this underlying groove of a song and I wanted to be as far away from conventional rock pop music as possible and focus on treble rather than bass, you know? So, you know, they're not the first band to do that, but it certainly adds a little bit to to what makes these guys a little bit unique compared to, you know, I mean, even though he loved Repulsion, you know one of the you know the crazy things about Repulsion was Scott's bass, you know that sort of distorted sound, and that's just kind of missing. You know, same with yeah. Shane and other people. You know what they did with Napalm. So, um, and and then one last quote from John, real quick, about the speed of the band. He said, "I was really into the idea that slowing down meant selling out. At its core, my idea of grind was all about pure speed and being creative enough, creative enough to put things interesting." Uh, to keep things interesting while essentially playing fast in every single part. So there's almost like no breathing on any of these records. You know, I mean there's like when there's like a riff part or something like that, you it's almost like it fucking overwhelms you. You're like, whoa, like you know. Um, and that's cool because it's like these just little subtleties. It's kind of like what makes Rain and Blood so great. Is the first time you hear Rain and Blood, at least for me when I was a freshman in high school, I was like, Every song sounds the same. What the fuck is up with this, you know? And I, and I knew I liked it, but it was like when it got to like the parts in like, you know, Jesus Saves where it slowed down and, and riff for a second, I was like, oh, yeah, that's the good stuff, you know? And it was it was so like, it wasn't like reinventing the wheel, but because everything else was at this like insane velocity, just the the parts that stood out as slow like hit bigger because of that. And I think the same thing with a band like this, you know? Oh, just, just like, like Black
1: Breath. You know, i yeah. horrified.
2: Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And Pig Destroyer's done that formula to a T, obviously. You know, they know how to like really win you over. I mean, Scum has the Celtic Frost part and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um but yeah, so that's, that's kind of where, where the band sort of starts off. And like you said, after they form, they put out this series of kind of splits and things like that, you know, um, They'll do splits later, even with like Melt Banana, J- Japanese noise rock band, Plutocracy, things like that. Um, in fact, I think we're playing something off the split with Plutocracy um, a little bit later here. Uh,
4: I think or so. no, the
2: Melt Banana split. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Is That is. I'm looking. Yeah, we're, we're playing something from the Melt Bl- Banana split in, in a moment. Yeah. And then we get to ulterior. And so, you know, ulterior, this was not an album I knew very much until you you, you know, we put this kind of show together. But again, 23 songs, 17 minutes. Um, who are their peers at this point? You know, in '95 in the American grind scene, you know, I mean, terror terrorizer and repulsion have sort of like, you know, kind of cascaded into the different places. You had brutal truth, but brutal truth is kind of doing a different kind of form of grind at this point. I mean, we mentioned AC like who else were their contemporaries hmm. in America? So it
3: felt like carnage hadn't started up at that point yet. Right. I think they were
2: about to, they were kind of right in that realm, you uh, know, was um, awesome
3: happening yet.
0: I think they yeah, but that's, started. Swedish.
2: that's Swedish. I'm just thinking of in America. Okay. You know, they're like, just talking. Who else was... No, I mean, I wasn't in, in general, but just in like being like, kind of right around the pre-internet or right as the internet's happening they're pretty isolated is what i'm kind of getting at like i don't know who they're like touring with or who they would play shows with that would want to i don't know that wasn't from europe or something like that
4: Mm -hmm. so um, i heard they're they predate
0: pig destroyer they predate cephalic carnage like the relapse grind wave is mostly after Ulterior. And I, yeah. like, we're going to get into this later, but I think that's part of the reason, not not just that Chang's a, a Nipponophile, but I think that's part of the reason why they gravitated to doing things in Japan or with Japanese bands like Melt Banana or why he would later start bands with people who are veterans of the Japanese grind scene. Because grind never went anywhere in Japan. It was always kind of popular? It's, it's the... <sighs> We'll get it the Japanese grind and hardcore scene is vibrant and has been since the 80s and never quite died yeah. um I mean arguably the first the first like blast beat is that band SOB on oh, their al- yeah. on their album um, what is it don't be swindle yeah my my girlfriend and I we like to yell that one other around the house we're being swindle. irritated <laughs> don't be swindle um, yeah uh, you know there's burning spirits hardcore in japan like they're like weird fusion of of like thrash and crust that is still like a super vibrant scene um a lot like crust in sweden it just never stopped right yeah. it's not like america where where like the genres had waves um it, it, in japan grinds just kept fucking going you know so i i think that is a lot of why they would do something like do a split with melt banana
2: yeah that makes sense yeah they almost Wait. fit into that aesthetic more you know and that's by design sure you know? sure yeah you yeah. know based like you said on uh this term that i i had to look up when you said it and i thought i knew what it meant it, it did mean what i thought it meant but you saw uh nipponophile which is somebody that's kind of obsessed with japanese culture right sure right yeah
3: the polite word for uh, weeb i guess yeah. Oh.
2: so <laughs> you were learning all this street lingo from you guys what was <laughs> what was the the term uh to describe the like uh pig destroyer sounds Scronk.
3: yeah like the the yeah. math scronk. there you
2: go there you thing, go yeah. See? it's like old guys like mark and i we need a, a little education from you young and core
1: behind
3: everything
2: yeah yeah <laughs> you can't put core and everything so
3: Christ, if we qualify as the young guys, then hey, welcome to it. There was a
2: time where I felt like hip in metal, and uh, yeah, no longer so. Yeah, I'm not cutting edge uh, in my opinions, to, to say, I'm,
3: the... I'm barely hanging on to the edge at this point. But... <laughs>
2: enjoy it while it lasts
3: yeah i suppose so
2: so it's ulterior where i in my notes we were joking before we hit recording i said i actually saw someone in some of the research i was doing say that lars stole the snare drum sound for saint anger from from ulterior
0: <laughs> oh my god
3: <laughs> oh wow uh, Yeah, it's, it's a pretty thonky like gonk kind of sound yeah, on that yeah record.
0: Well, that's but, uh, fair because now Dave Witty's in Municipal Waste, and he's and that band steals all their riffs from the first Metallica album. So there true. you go.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll kill them all exactly. The
3: universe has balanced out. Yeah,
2: and this is where that great story um, that I I talked to John about in the interview comes up, um, where you know this idea of his professor, his photography professor, and you know, right. it, I, I think. I think this is a cool story to really like give you insight into the psychology of of John and kind of how he thinks about music and art and, and all these kind of things. And he basically said she made me go through the dark room on this photograph for two fucking days. It was a nightmare to get in there. But when I got got it, she said I got it. And I knew I'd gotten it before I showed it to her. I was more happy with that picture, which was nothing special than anything I'd done up until that point. I was still a freshman in college, and while people had pushed me to do better on things before, they were not on any kind of things I cared about. When it came time to do a band, I approached it from that direction. This is an opportunity to do something great. It was not sitting around having fun and jerking off. That's been a problem for me in my life, taking projects and turning them into art projects. I really wanted it to be at a certain point. I wanted to eclipse what Napalm Death had done at that point, point. Um, and that was ulterior for me. It was to sort of almost make the follow-up for what – you know, uh, from enslavement to obliteration was going to be, you know, it had napalm death not gone, you know, into kind of the death metal sort of roots and stuff like that. And I guess, like, you know, Mark, you as kind of the the artist, you know, here, like in having done a lot of stuff with photography and things like that, can you kind of understand what he's sort of saying in terms of that idea of like, the satisfaction of you know, refining something so much, almost to the point where you like were miserable doing it, but the satisfaction on the other end was like, holy shit, like this is something I'm really like super proud of.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think everybody goes through that with, I mean, with, I'm sure he's talking analog photography. Um, like once you shoot the picture, that's, you know, I, I did about two years of photography in college and just shooting the pictures, like, you know, not even half of what you can do with the, the finished project. Um, the, actually the developing of it, um, where you can actually, you know, dodge and burn and you can basically kind of tweak, make a painting out of the entire, you know, negative printing process. Um, yeah, that's, there's even like me learning how to use a a brush was something that was kind of torturous, but when you got through it, it was like, it took you to the next level. It's, it's, it's this like master and apprentice thing. You need to put yourself through, I think, to really go anywhere further.
2: Well, it's uh, it's Miyagi Do Karate, right? Wax on, wax exactly. off. Exactly, exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, I I I don't know. I think John Chang is maybe maybe more of a uh, <clears throat> a little bit more of a Cobra Kai Cobra guy. Cobra Kai, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think punch just you in the Craig face, first, if you can't deadly. Do it right? <laughs> yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. 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 I agree. I agree. So I guess one of the songs we're gonna hear uh, from Alterior is, is "Mind Seduction Aftermath," and I, I don't have a lot of notes for this. I just said it's you know you can tell that Seth inspired vocals. Um, you know, classic Napalm Death riff. Uh, you know, about halfway through, and that last fifteen seconds are pretty, pretty killer. I don't know. You Plus guys are a little precision. bit more. Yeah, yeah. Anything about I don't know ulterior that well, so I guess I'll, I'll lean on you guys a little bit more in terms of any other insight about that record that you take away from it.
3: Well, just, uh, my notes on this particular song is it's really hard to tell what the fuck is going on with the guitars <laughs> because of the production, but yeah. like. If, you, if this was like the first time that you heard the band you would immediately know that they have a great drummer and a great vocalist like yeah. that's unquestionable like it's, yeah. it's there.
2: Indeed, indeed. And I would say the same thing too when we get to the same year that they put out Ulterior is the split with Mount Banana and uh, mm-hmm. the song continuity and I had, I had a little bit more to say about that song what, what did you guys kind of say about continuity.
3: Uh, the I mean the drumming again, I'm a drummer primarily, so I'm, I'm gonna harp on this when I can. but like uh, witty's ability to have these like very consistent very fast blast beats, but then also catch these like accents on the end of phrases when normally someone would be like running out of energy is like it That's immediately incredible. catches your ear. yeah, yeah you're mm-hmm. just like, you're like whoa like how did he do that? Um, and the thing I liked about this one is it's interesting to hear them sort of early on still doing kind of traditional, Uh, structured songs like there's kind of an a b a c structure to this and i mean it's
2: actually catchy at points yeah
3: like and like the big slow riff at the end is just like the fast riff but slower it's like oh they're still kind of like doing the basics very well but it's clear that it's not their final form yet
2: it almost creates like a pathway for the sound that i think a band like pig destroyer would almost Mm. pick up with yeah yeah totally um yeah the Jesse
1: pentado napalm riffs
2: Yeah. Yeah. But I think you're right, Dave, everything Dave's able to do from that opening sort of blast fest to sort of where he settles into like that kind of groove in the, in the last kind of 30 seconds, it's, it's seamless, you know, his ability to kind of move through these different drumming kind of patterns and stuff. And I think it should be said that on all the discordance access, as far as I know, there were no triggers used uh, on anything that Dave was doing drumming.
3: Yeah, you can tell, and it's in a good way. You know. Yeah, in you know, a good way. Recorded yeah. live.
2: But I think like triggers really started when like late '90s ish, like '97, '98. Right. That's when I remember hearing them on like a lot of those
3: like um, Nile records and stuff like that. Is when yeah, I, I feel like know, Demon
2: Border and, and Nick Barker mm-hmm. and some of the stuff. actually, was, uh, um,
1: Morbid Angel. They started using them with uh, Tom Morris used triggers for blessed for blessed of the sick. Yeah, oh, uh, that gotcha. makes
2: sense. Yeah, that's kind of got a triggering kind of.
1: Cause they couldn't record, you know, he played so fucking fast, you know, the commando, you couldn't capture it with a mic, right? And even like early brutal truth records, like the blasts start to like decay, like the the microphone gets like overwhelmed or something. And it's, it sounds like, you know, putting a phone up next to like a monitor at a concert, like they just couldn't figure it out
3: yet. Right. Like the resonance of each drum is overlapping and canceling each other out at that speed. Pretty
2: much. Yep. Yep. Indeed. Well, I think let's let's get it back into some music and I think we can talk about their second uh album when we come back and then kind of set up inalienable. Um, because we've talked for, for quite a while here. So um we've got five songs, but it's gonna go by pretty quick. So uh, you're not gonna have, have long before we're back here. <laughs> let's but do it got, twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rewind, listen a couple times, you know. And that's what I would say, I think, with discordance, especially like you know, you guys mentioned it, it takes a couple listens for this stuff to sink in. This is not gonna be like you'll listen to this show and hopefully, you know, my goal of, of, of especially Requiem fans from a metal perspective is that you'll be interested enough to like go and like put all of like discordance on and really, you know, with headphones and listen to the you know 25 minutes or whatever that, that it takes to get through it and really start to appreciate the flow because I think this is not a band that makes singles. You know what I mean? Like you're not like listening to the hit or something like that. Like what we would say with other bands we've done on Requiem before. Um, and even, like, Repulsion, you could listen to, like, singles or Napalm, you know, in a weird sense. But sure. this band, not so much,
0: you know. It is it is the Discordance Axis experience. Yes. That's... We, we are now in the John Chang zone. Yes. It is his world. You play his game.
2: Yeah. I like and that. Th- there you go. I like that. I like that.
0: Real anime well, villain energy.
2: I the, yeah. <laughs> So, so what we've got, we've got from their debut record, Ulterior, we've got Mind Seduction, Aftermath. Then we've got Continuity from their split with Melt Banana. And then we've got a pair of tunes from, uh, do you say Xiaohu? Joho. Oh, Joho. Okay. Again, there it is. Uh, bingo. You know, bingo. <laughs> um, and we got Information Sniper and Typeface uh, from from their second record in 97. And then we're going to end with a tune called Alzheimer from their split with Plutocracy, also in 1997.
5: And then we'll be back like you know prior to hearing anti-capital i didn't know there were any other grindcore bands I especially didn't know there were any in the united states like like the napalm stuff was uh you know i got i got from enslavement to obliteration and it was you know it was almost like it was so far beyond like all the thrash metal stuff i was listening to at that point like you know uh you, you know pick 10 10 bands like slayer possessed nuclear assault uh celtic frost like I listened to all of that stuff. I really liked it. Voivod, obviously. Um, and, uh, enslavement to obliteration was like a whole nother level, right? Like it was like the fastest thing anybody had ever made. The vocals were like taking the, the, you know, the scream from angel of death and like making it like one of the, uh, uh, not just like the, 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 punctuation, the whole record was like, was like a punctuation, right? Like, like, you know, if you, you think about like a crash symbol as the accent for a measure, right? Um, mm. uh, like, Napalm Death played crash cymbal the whole time, so the whole song was an accent, right? The whole song was was played at that level of extremity, and that was really like that was really attractive because it was it was the absolute most extreme form of what I was interested in, which was you know fast music essentially. And in terms of my my photography teacher, like you know what I what I learned from her was that that you shouldn't be satisfied with just doing an okay job, right? Like it was it was important. If you were gonna do something, you should you should give it like a thousand percent. And and like the concept of of just doodling around with stuff like that that wasn't a really that wasn't like how uh, a mature artist would create things or do things or approach life. Because there's like there's two levels of like I don't like this. There's the like I just don't like this like. Whatever it is aesthetically, right? If it's a picture or if it's music, like, hey, I just don't like the sound. Like me personally, I'm not a big country music guy. Like I don't, I don't really enjoy country music, and I, to be honest, I don't listen to much jazz. I'm not like a big jazz guy either. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it, and there's not going to like I can hear music in those genres and think, hey, that's pretty good. Like I, 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 I hear what they're doing, but I'm never going to love it, right? Because because it doesn't speak to me personally. Um, whereas. Like, like if we're looking like, you know, like listen to us, like Rain of Blood is a great example of an album that's like, well, well, what don't you like about Rain of Blood? It's it's so dry. It's so stripped down. Every song is so short. It's just like it's just meat and potatoes. Right. Like like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, guitar solo, mosh part, um, verse, chorus. And every fucking song on that record is like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it's what it was one of my favorite records. Like when I heard Rain of Blood, it was like how compact, how can you get something distilled down to its purest essence? And that was rain and blood. That was like the, the, and that's why I think so many people think of it as the like the penultimate thrash record, because it literally is perfect soup to nuts. Every song beginning to end every riff it's dry. It's not overproduced. They got rid of all the reverb. They, they had a more raw, like, you know, like punk sound, if you will. And, and then delivered it with the anger and speed and you know technical ability and precision of thrash metal because that's the thing about like thrash that that, that was like metal is, is was more interesting to me than than a lot of the punk stuff um, you know until I heard Napalm if you consider them punk or metal or whatever you know mm. grindcore right um, mm. they were they were they were a precision instrument right like they, they were like they're, 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 I mean are they sloppy at times yeah but like overall like Fido especially. Is I mean that's a pretty precision record. They play they play pretty pretty evenly on that record. There's not like a lot of dropped beats. There's not like the guitar is is isn't in time with the um, with the drums and everything. And the you know the bass is just kind of like a mess. But like you can't really tell,
2: right? Because <laughs> yeah. it's so
5: distorted. It's Like
2: repulsion and the vocals, bass, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The vol- the vocals seem to hit all the right the
5: right beats, right? Like so so it's a really, really tight execution. And for for grindcore, like the 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 peel sessions were kind of like. The record that that was like holy shit, like the Peel because se- the Peel sessions sound unhinged, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Peel sessions sound in the Napalm Death Peel sessions. Yeah, uh, they, they sound like like an unhinged group of guys. Like they're just in there, just blasting. Every song is distorted. It's just like crash cymbals and screaming and the growl vocals and it, it's it's just all in. It's very short. It's, I mean, I think the first one was like five minutes or something like that, six minutes, and then the second one was like you know like ten minutes or eleven minutes, and. You know, like to get up uh, uh, an album. You know what were what you know was essentially be sold as a twelve inch record at that time. That was that was kind of an interesting approach. Like, oh, this is a full album. It's six minutes long. Oh shit, you know. Like, uh, Asuk had that too with Anti Capital. Their their first album. It's like it's fifteen minutes, but it's a full album, right? Like that's the full package. It's like that's the length of a grindcore record. It's like super compact, super compressed, very like I don't want to say efficient. That's the wrong word, but like stripped down right to literally the, the 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 bare minimum of of what this sound is which is like fast drums uh you know that sort of heavier guitars the gooney screamy vocals and that's it right and then it or or bass if you're napalm right like because because didn't have a bass mm-hmm. uh but those those were the, the sort of shaping things because like i when i heard Asuk, i knew i didn't want to be in a band like Asuk, but i kind of did right like i i, I didn't i, I all of the slower stuff the more of them a lot because they had a lot of like sort of i don't i don't know what to call them death metal parts right a lot of double bass stuff that they did um that stuff didn't speak to me as much as the blast beats like i just wanted to hear blast beats all the time right like when i heard repulsion the first time uh the demo i was like holy shit like this band is like this is it right like this is where napalm got all their ideas from um and I don't know which specific interview you had read where I was talking about Fido, but I loved – I thought Fido was, like, no shit, the best record I ever heard in my entire life right up until I heard Horrified by Repulsion. <laughs> and, like, I, I can still listen to um, From Enslavement to Obliteration and, and and love it, but I don't really listen to it that often because whenever – I I mean, once I heard Horrified, it's really hard not to listen to Nippon Deaths, like the records I like by them anyway. And not here, just like all of the Repulsion shit. In I mean, because it, it's mostly Repulsion riffs, mm-hmm. right? Like, yep. like eighty percent of Nepal Death is Repulsion, just faster.
2: Yeah, we're uh, we're both Michigan guys, and we're pretty we're you know we're we're pretty tight with Scott. And in fact, Mark's oh. Mark's doing some kind of creative endeavors with Scott that they're they're kind of working on behind the scenes right now. But yeah, so any any Repulsion worship is is good for us, you know, being kind of Michigan proud, you know that we are. So. Um uh, well,
5: I mean they invented they, they I mean I said it I have said it a couple times like Repulsion really invented the sound and like if I'd heard them before I heard Napalm they would have been the band that probably had more of an influence on me um you know like like cuz I'm trying to all of the early Eric bands were, were, you know I love them all at the time cuz nothing else sounded like those like Terrorizer Bolt Thrower um uh Entombed uh you know, Carcass, like the first Carcass record, the second Carcass record's great, right? Um, but, like, the first one's basically like a grind record, right? Like, they invented the gore grind genre. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it, they, at least they, they invented it in a way that it, that it really delivered and turned into something bigger than what they expected, right? Because Carcass is kind of like a global phenomenon. Like, whether you like what they did later or not, doesn't matter. Those first couple of records were, like, really, really different and had a huge influence on everybody else. Because, I mean... First time I opened that that second carcass record, I was not prepared for what was inside that thing. Like I was like, "Holy shit, what is this?" And it had this weird smell to it because it was, it, you know, they shipped them out of England, right? So there wasn't a lot of stores you could buy that record when it came out. And I remember when I got the copy, it had just come out out of the box, um, and I, I think I had special ordered it, and uh, I opened it, and it had this like this weird like sort of sickly sweet plastic smell from the wrapper they used. And then you see all like that that gore collage inside, and it's it's, you know what I was talking about with the photography, like do something seriously, take it to its extreme, like do the best you can. Carcass is a great example of like that's the absolute extreme, right? Like if you're going to do like actual body horror, I mean, like there's very few records that have had that kind of impact on me, and and I've I've certainly spoken about this later on. Also, is that like one of the reasons I don't like most music that's being produced today? That's sort of more extreme music that uses like sort of graphic imagery is nothing any of these bands have done have made me angry the way that I am angry when uh, when I see ISIS murdering people right like throwing gay people off of buildings or mass executing kids like that makes me sick and angry like music today doesn't make me feel that way Well, okay so there, there's going to be different answers depending on who you speak to in the band sure, about sure, that, right?
2: okay. because,
5: you know because uh, it wasn't like a unified like like effort you know like discordance access was my band right like like i I paid for practice all the time because uh i wanted to do it it was like my thing like dave was in human remains that was his band and rob rob was just kind of like really you know he enjoyed playing with dave and he liked grindcore but like and and he had and rob had this like incredible skill that we were trying to like trying to figure out how to like combine that with a sort of like extreme sound Mm -hmm. you know uh it, which was kind of hard, right? Because Rob was was a riff guy versus like a chord guy, if that makes any sense. Like, you know, Discordance Access um, had a lot of really unique things in the beginning that other people weren't really doing because we were injecting that sort of like. <laughs> uh, Vo- Vo- Voivod is, is a big. I mean, Voivod is, is super influential in terms of like, like everybody in Discordance, at least. And I think Gridlink also. I mean, I know Matsubara absolutely loved Voivod. And. You know, Voivod is a really interesting band cuz they changed so much over like, you know, whatever however long they've been a band like 40 years, you know, 30 years. Yeah. I mean, I think I bought the 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 the
2: Roar album when it came out and I think that was like 85? 84 you know, I think is Roar. Yeah. Yep.
5: Yeah, yeah, like Krogol the exterminator, you know, like what a what a cool image. And um, with with Discordance what my goal was initially was to be like i wanted i wanted to make because napalm didn't sound like napalm anymore at that point right when we started discordance they were in their death metal era right like they had stopped the that they had cut all the high vocals out of the music they had slowed way down they were you know they did the scott burns thing like even mentally murdered they'd slowed down a lot right they weren't they were like they were transitioning to becoming more of a death metal sound which was you know cool good for them right like their songs on mentally murdered that are awesome um but like it was it, it wasn't what I wanted anymore, right? It was it was becoming more like conventional, uh, and and they were they were taking. Uh, I I mean they were. I I think on the back of the record, like half the band is wearing like Morbid Angel T-shirts, right?
2: Like I love Morbid Angel, but like I didn't want that in my Napalm Death. Yeah, yeah, I get that. <laughs> um, yep, yep. And 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 uh, and so like when you're talking about
5: like in a, in a, you know a, a trying to purify or make something extreme, that was definitely my goal. Like I wanted I wanted to have like like this this absolute soundless like purity of like emotion expressed through speed like like that was my thing like I, th- I thought that like what 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 i was looking for what i wasn't finding from any other genres or bands at the time was how can we express complex emotion at like a hundred thousand miles per hour right mm-hmm. like like uh like like the first time i went to tokyo uh in 95 with da was the first time i really felt like i was i was in my element
2: Of something that animated you guys was kind of this desire to push the envelopes of the genre and be different and unique in in, in kind of ways, um, almost to a detriment, like physically and mentally, in terms of the toll that it took sometimes on the band. And I guess was it just this desire to purify something into its most extreme elements, like what you were talking about with Repulsion or, or Carcass, that drove Discordance to sort of make these very economical songs, like the fastest, most stripped-down sort of things that you you could? Or was there, like, a different um, ideology behind that, I guess?
5: <laughs> well, okay, so there, there's going to be different answers depending on who you speak to in the sure, band about sure. that, right? Sure, okay. Because, you know, because uh, it wasn't, like, a unified, like, like effort. You know, like, Discord and Taxis was my band, right? Like, like I, I paid for practice all the time because... Uh, I wanted to do it. It was, like, my thing. Like, Dave was in Human Remains. That was his band. And Rob Rob was just kind of, like, really, you know, he enjoyed playing with Dave, and he liked grindcore. But, like, and, and he had, and Rob had this, like, incredible skill that we were trying to, like, trying to figure out how to, like, combine that with a sort of, like, extreme sound,
4: mm-hmm. you know? Uh,
5: it Which was kind of hard, right? Because Rob was was a riff guy versus, like, a chord guy, if that makes any sense. Like, you know, Discord and Saxis, um, had a lot of really unique things in the beginning that other people weren't really doing because we were injecting that sort of like, that
2: Voivod flavor that, I was gonna that, say, that we all, Rob's yeah, all, we all Voivod, run. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah
5: Vo- Vo- Voivod is, is a big I mean, Voivod is, is super influential in terms of like, like everybody in Discordance at least, and I think Gridlink also I mean, I know Matsubara absolutely loved Voivod, and you know, Voivod is a really interesting band cuz they changed so much over like, you know, whatever, however long they've been a band like 40 years, you know, 30 years. Yeah. I mean, I think I bought the 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 Roar album when it came out and I think that was like 85,
2: 84 you know, I think is Roar. Album. Yeah. Yep.
5: Yeah, yeah, like Crowgod the Exterminator, you know, like what a what a cool image. And um, with with Discordance what my goal was Initially was to be like I wanted. I wanted to make because Napalm didn't sound like Napalm anymore at that point, right? When we started Discordance, they were in their death metal era, right? Like they had stopped the that they had cut all the high vocals out of the music. They had slowed way down. They were you know they did the Scott Burns thing, like even Mentally Murdered, they'd slowed down a lot, right? They weren't. Yeah. They were like they were transitioning to becoming more of a death metal sound, which was you know cool, good for them, right? Like their songs on Mentally Murdered that are awesome, um, but like. It was it, it wasn't what I wanted anymore, right? It was it was becoming more like conventional, uh, and and they were they were taking. Uh, I I mean they were. I I think on the back of the record, like half the band is wearing like Morbid Angel T-shirts, right? Like I
2: love Morbid Angel, but like I didn't want that in my Napalm Death. Yeah, yeah, I get that. <laughs> um, yep, yep. And 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 uh, and so like when you're talking about like in a, in
5: a, you know a, a trying to purify or make something extreme, that was definitely my goal. Like I wanted I wanted to have like like this this absolute soundless like purity of like emotion expressed through speed like like that was my thing like I, th- I thought that like what 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 i was looking for what i wasn't finding from any other genres or bands at the time was how can we express complex emotion at like a hundred thousand miles per hour right mm-hmm. like like uh like like the first time i went to tokyo uh in 95 with da was the first time i really felt like i was i was in my element you know, like, there were signs everywhere. There's text everywhere, flashing lights, like animated things. And in like this sort of like massive congestion of, of data and visuals and sound. And it really felt like home to me. Tokyo to this day is still my favorite city in the world to go to. It's the only place I actually like to go. That's not uh, typically where I live, which is the Philly, New York area. Mm-hmm. Um, so D D A became those things through a through uh, through essentially me directing the band to to take away the elements the conventional elements that are in our earlier songs right like because the first couple of da EPs, I, they, I, I, there's definitely an ASUC influence in there but it's it's more it's more by necessity than by design and and what I mean by that is we weren't at a point physically where we could play the songs that were on ulterior like when we hit ulterior we we were finally at a point where like every song was blast beats. We were, we were barely even had the thrash beats in them, and it was just blast beats the whole time. And we were doing different stuff in every song, right? Uh, or if we dipped out of a blast beat, it was to try to do something kind of a little different, and then just right back into the blast beat. You know, in a- a- AC, they uh, some of their earlier EPs had elements of that, and I, I really liked some of the early AC stuff. Like um, you know, the I think it was called another EP, and then they had a split with Seven Minutes of Nausea that absolutely love those records they had like kind of a big influence on me um, and uh, getting getting the DA guys the other guys to the point where we were physically able to create songs like that is what allowed us to have the breathing room to actually make a record like Joho because yeah. Joe Joho is kind of like Joho is kind of the delivery of the first vision I had for Discordance access which is like really fast. And it's got all kinds of different, like, time changes, and it's very uh, – it's it, it's it's very uh, – it's an evocative record. You know, we kind of broke away from uh, from doing the, the more illustrative style artwork, and we were going into more ph- pho- photography, really finding our own space versus, like, doing illustrations, which had been influenced by, like, Paul, Paul from ASAC's work. And, like, Katsuhiro Otomo was a big guy. I was really into Masume Shiro. Like, I was really into manga. Mm-hmm. And uh, – and 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 moving away from the liner, like 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 most people don't realize, I didn't actually draw the cover to Ulterior. We actually brought Mid from Deviated Instinct and to do that illustration. He had been doing. I've been pen pals with him, and um, I put out an EP with his band Spine Wrench. And um, Mid had uh, had been doing art for a bunch of the other earache bands and some of the Nuclear Blast bands. And I said, "Hey man, can, can you do a can you do an album cover for me?" Like I was basically sick of everyone saying my artwork looked like the guy from Assuck. And then you know we had mid do the thing, and all the reviews were like, "Oh, it looks like the art from Assuck." And it's like, Oh okay, great. It's not just me." Uh, yeah. uh, um, uh, but you, I think you kind of get the, the, what I'm saying. Like for we, sure, yeah. It was it, was, it was kind of like it was we we had to physically be capable of making a record like Joe Ho before we could make a record like Joe Ho.
2: You almost had to like train for it, you know physically and yeah, mentally well, and, and you know with a vision you know
5: recording recording DA records was was it was literally a miserable for Dave because he would have to because Dave likes beer right like he always has uh, he basically used to have to give up drinking to prepare for a DA record for months in advance. Like getting ready to record, and that's why we never used to play a lot of shows either. We had scheduling things, but the bigger issue was the physical amount of time it took to prepare to do a live show to the, to the to the standard we wanted it at. I mean, we would spend literally like three or four months practicing three or four days a week to be able to be in the shape to do one of those shows. It is really physically difficult, right? Because um, it, it was it, we, we didn't have the slow parts for breaks. We'd have like like, you know three seconds between each track, and we would do like I think we worked it out. There would be like four or five track blocks, or four track blocks, and maybe an encore of like one or two songs if we if we had to do an encore. Uh, But like that that played without breaks all the way through, you know, as fast as possible.
2: And like live, we were typically a little bit faster than on record. Um, (laughs) It's hard to believe Dave could go faster than he is on Inalienable. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like it's it's almost mind blowing to me.
5: Yeah, I mean it's a damn fast record, and like live, he was faster. You know, yeah, like sure. he he really he really plays off the energy of the crowd. I mean, you sure. can see that in the, the the work he does now. Like, you know, he plays in like bigger bands. Like, he enjoys the live experience. That was not really what that was not what Rob was interested in. And it, like, I I don't like playing alive a lot because the more the more I do something, the less the less I have invested in it. Right? Like playing the same material over and over again is is exhausting and like it it loses it loses its meaning for me because when we do when you do a couple shows a year like one or two shows a year when you go out and perform those things you're really you're really i mean for at least for me i'm really invested in the performance right like i'm really giving like the the full feeling behind that material and i and i can't do that or i could not do that uh, given Given like like doing like six or seven shows or eight shows like because there was a, a short period where we played a bunch of shows in like ninety seven I think it was or ninety eight and um,
2: is that when Rob kind of left the band for a bit?
5: Yeah yeah that was the first time Rob quit. Yeah. Uh, it was it was after we recorded Joho and right before we went to Japan. Yeah. Um, I don't remember which year we did the Fiesta Grande show, but I remember like when we did the Fiesta Grande show, we went to Japan right after that, and then we broke up again um because we would we would basically i mean in some ways it was like a project band like nobody in the band hung out or saw each other when we weren't doing the band yeah you know like like we would get together we'd write the record we'd record the record and be like hey, it was great seeing you all see you in six months or a year whenever we're going to do the next thing right and and it was always like it was typically built around scheduling of like hey i want to do this release with this guys we need to produce material for this this date so it was very like release driven like we we were you know it's almost like a production schedule like hey we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go make this album and we're, we gotta have it done by this date so we can record for it and then you know by this date we'll go we'll, we'll go perform it and release it and you know whatever else was, was needed at the time uh, so that kind of like scheduling i think is kind of i don't know if that i don't think that's how most bands work um and as a result, like we were, we were, we weren't super prolific, but we were prolific enough, right? Like we would make, we would make a good record, do some performances, and then go away, yeah. and then you know do another record, do a couple performances, and go away. Uh, and that, I mean, again, it was physically tough to make the stuff, so it was good to have an actual break from everybody else in the band, like you know, because we we broke up literally after every recording. <laughs> <laughs> I mean literally we broke up like we broke up in the middle of the Hellchild split recording which was supposed to be the first DALP and then we didn't like half the material I didn't think the performances were good enough so we we cut it down to the four best songs that we recorded and released that as a split with Hellchild Um, we did uh, we did the um, whatchamacallit we did uh, um, uh, we recorded Ulterior and Dave left the band uh, because he, he wanted to focus on Human Remains we, you know, we came back from Japan and he wanted to do another record and we did.
2: Um, Is that uh, when you we did, did the pl- Plutocracy split?
5: Yeah, we did the plut- Plutocracy split and the Melt Banana split around the oh, same yeah, time. Yeah. And, yep. and then, then we were going to do a record with Masami Akita and um, then Rob developed tendonitis. Yep. And so we ended up canceling that. That never happened. Uh, and we recorded Joho shortly thereafter. We started working on Joho. We went to record Joho and like we. we we had a, a, a for once. I wasn't the cause of drama and Joho, which was great. Uh, the, the other two guys were fighting, which was delightful, the, the, as opposed to me causing everybody to fight with everybody else. Um, they they got there. There was like a lot of stress recording that record, um, and we broke up after that. Uh, we got back together because we were going to go toward Japan, uh, and then the, the scheduling started to get like crazy on Japan because there were th- at that point. TA had been like the only indie band to go to Japan in the grind world because everybody else was being brought over by these like, there was a big company in Japan record company called Toys Factory and they were bringing, they had like the earache distribution deal. So when they would bring over bands, it was like a major label bringing, you know, like Brutal Truth or Carcass or, you know, Napop Death, whoever they were, they were being brought over by Toys Factory versus we were basically doing it ourselves, right? We were working with HD facts to book the performances, but, we were actually fronting a lot of the money for the tour ourselves like in terms of like all the flights and all that other good stuff and um, yeah it, it was it was those, those were great experiences but like you know the as being a smaller entity like the promoter had to work around when like a bigger band was coming through so like if you know bolt thrower announces a tour like the same audience that would have come to see discords access went to see bolt thrower so he wanted, he wanted to have a couple months between the shows so, like, the DA show would be more special and, like, more people would come and, like, we'd sell more merch so he could make his money back, too. Because Japan, uh... I'm not sure if it's still this way, but Japan is very different in that it, the promoter essentially pays the club to lease the club out for his show. Oh, and then,
2: okay. the, then
5: the promoter books the bands and then the, the promoter runs the concert, not the club. Yeah. And the promoter pays everybody at the end of the night, uh... To include himself, because he's got to recoup the money he paid to the club for for renting it out.
2: That makes sense. Okay.
5: Yeah, it, 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 it's 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 different than my experiences with like booking shows in the U.S. Uh, but Japan is also a totally different animal culturally. So you know, for sure, that's just how it works.
2: Yeah, that same trip I was talking to you about before we start recording in China, we also spent a week in Japan, and it was it was cool to compare the two. You know, at the same time, and also a week in Taiwan. So it was like. <laughs> Moving through three different unique cultures, you know. So, um, yeah, very
4: different cultures.
2: Yeah, indeed. And my buddy still uh, teaches over in Taiwan, so I, I try and visit him when I can, you know, pre-pandemic, obviously. So,
4: yeah, yeah, getting in there now is a little rough.
2: <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, I guess um, the, the one one sort of facet about the band, and, and not just this band, but a lot of the, the things that you've done, but um, it seems to be like kind of your approach to lyrics. Sort of this idea of fixating on like emotional states and personal strife, but delivered through this kind of like fantastical lens. I think that that was relatively unexplored in Grind, um, certainly at that time, and and really outside of like maybe Pig Destroyer, who were probably starting. They started obviously after you, but they were kind of probably you know rumbling around uh, the time you guys were putting together Inalienable and stuff like that, like. Mm-hmm. I mean, outside of Grind, I guess um, the the closest analog, you know, that we can kind of think of that takes that approach is somebody like Dax Riggs with, like, Acid Bath or something like that, but he's not really doing it with, like, anime and sci-fi aspects in it, I guess. Well,
5: think about Voivod.
2: Yeah, okay. So, was Voivod, like, one of the, the inf- like, where did this, con- was it Voivod that this concept sort of came from for you, or? or... Uh, well...
5: When you say concept, you mean the, the, the style of writing?
2: Yeah, the style of writing. This idea of like putting that into grind, but p- pulling in emotional states and personal strife, and, and and all these other kind of, but but doing it through this kind of fantastical lens. What what was well, sort of I, driving that? I guess.
5: Well, well, you know, you, you write what you know, right? Like so, so even from the earlier DA days, like when I when I didn't know what I was saying, you know, when I didn't know what I was talking about, right? Because I'm like a twenty year old kid. And um, at that point in my life, I'm you know what I know is manga and anime. So like what I'm trying to write about things, you know, and, and manga and anime weren't always like slice of life, um, sort of like carefree, you know, kawaii only type things. Uh, the stuff, that, the stuff that I was uh, into, like Star Blazers or, or Gundam, early Gundam stuff,
4: mm-hmm.
5: is very dark, like really heavy lessons about like human human beings and their interactions, right? Uh, in terms of the like human condition, uh, sacrifice, like struggle, like personal struggle, like cowardice, um, you know, like struggling, like human relationships, male men and women, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so some of that 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 stuff was in there to a certain degree, um, pre uh, like like pre like ulterior and earlier. It's 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 through this sort of like naive like political lens where. You have beliefs that you, you've sort of been inculcated by music that don't actually have any real bearing in the in the real world. Uh, you, you know, a great example would be like the Dead Kennedys. Like, I really liked the Dead Kennedys growing up. And, I, and a lot of their sort of like political ideology from, from the Dead Kennedys was something I, I really believed in in high school. And when I got older and when I started to see the world like actually traveling abroad and seeing how things are, I'm like, wow, this is a this is a really crazy worldview these guys have been exploring. Like some of the stuff is it makes sense, but a lot of it is just like it, it, it's not actually how the world is. And like you know, great example, it, 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 taking the Dead Kennedys, look at Joe Biafra, like, like he was screwing the, he was like, oh, I'm super, you know, like, the, the corporate guys are bad and money is bad. Well, he's screwing everybody in his band for, like, 20 years and yeah. not paying anyone royalties <laughs> until, like, they took him to court and basically got control of their music so they could actually, those guys could actually get the money they were owed, right? You know, and they got the right to perform as the Dead Kennedys without him because he'd been fucking him for, like, 30 years, 20 years, however long it was that he hadn't been kicking them any of the money or, or only a small portion of the money they were making from the sales of like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of copies of these records, right? Like sure. the Dead Kennedys is like, I mean, you can you can see a Dead Kennedys cassette pretty much anywhere in the world, right? Like it's like a universal thing, practically.
2: You Alzheimer, typeface, information sniper, continuity, and we started off with Mind Seduction Aftermath from their debut, Ulterior. Um so now we we get into uh to joho a bit uh from 97 and um joho translates to its japanese for what news info of a military nature i suppose um
0: military this- chatter is, is military like the, chatter. It's like the way to think about it like uh military uh, an endless stream of military ephemera
3: okay yeah techno babble basically
2: techno babble got it okay um And this is kind of like really where I think John begins to not just musically sort of create what the future of this band is going to be, but like he's really starting to bring in those other cultural elements a lot, you know, with the, the, the album title. And so I guess talk about the impact that like sort of Japanese culture sort of had maybe on like his identity and, and what he's sort of doing with this band a little bit with, I guess without having to go too heavy, we'll, we'll save Ava for, for the, maybe the next talk set, but just his like obsession maybe, uh, or what, what that was.
3: Well, I thought like even the opening lyric is kind of this like perfect anime nerd or like a uh, uh, Nihangafile energy. It's like alienation washes over me downloading world apartment horror. So the, the funny thing is like that could be read entirely as like metaphor and like symbolic imagery, or it could be literally describing digital piracy because, uh, world apartment horror is a movie, uh, written by Satoshi Kone, who is the subject of the second season of the human, uh, instrumentality podcast. Oh, cool! cool. Uh, and so it's like, that almost feels like someone like literally just sitting at their computer, feeling alienated, downloading a Japanese horror movie is like how the album opens. So pretty good representation of what we've got going on on this one
2: and this is sort of right when that um you know Ringu and and some of those kind of that that no style of horror stuff was starting to really pop up in Japan in quite a way you know so um yeah I just didn't know like I where where his initial interest is, it came in and I don't know if you mentioned in the interview segments that you know some of you have kind of heard um you know already after talk set one there if he gets into it in the interview, I think he just goes right into like his love of like anime and, and some of that kind of stuff. But but I think even like musically, they're starting to move in a different direction with these kind of pair of songs. They're kind of shedding the punk and the Napalm Death influence and kind of getting into like a, something a lot more like dissonant and fast and pure. And I think especially in a song like Typeface, which we just heard mm, too after yes. Information Sniper, this is where like you know I think. I was going to mention it when we were having the conversation last talk set, but I think the last secret ingredient here is, is Voivod, you know, that yes, they, you know, this idea, you know, Mark talked about how, you know, Rob's going at one speed and Dave's going at a different speed and then John's doing his thing and that the, the, the parts don't make any sense, but for some reason, the, sum of them kind of combine. And that's similar to like, I think, the magic of Voivod right or, or even maybe like Gore Guts or, or other things kind of like that but in particular I, I think of Voivod which is this idea that all the people in the band seem to be almost doing their own musical language but somehow it fits together so brilliantly and it's this sort of overriding dissonance but yet like that's something like Free Jazz has too where like there's this dissonance that kind of pushes people away but if you can like kind of get through the dissonance and see the beauty of it it's kind of like what um you know what velvet underground would do with the you know violas and stuff like that it creates this sort of layer of atmosphere and that's weird to say about grindcore because grindcore often is not the first kind of music you would talk about atmosphere you know um (laughs) but it's but it's there it's this sort of secret ingredient of the band that i think it took me a while to find that. And once I found it, it was like the doorway was like finally unlocked for me. And I I see it in in, in stuff like typeface, especially.
3: Typeface has uh, an extremely uh, screamo-esque chord progression, but I also know exactly what you're talking about with Voivod, because it's these extended chords. Like typically speaking, most chords have three notes in them, but the kind of chords that are being played in typeface have four. So they're adding the seventh on top of the, the root, the third and the fifth. And that's what gives it like the feeling of it being sort of jazzy is because like extended harmony is very common in jazz uh what's actually interesting is i actually feel like this is a really like consonant like balanced harmonic song like it actually is less dissonant than the other stuff that we've heard Uh but the sort of meta dissonance of these very consonant harmonies played with extreme distortion at extremely high speed creates that sense of like this doesn't feel right you know almost because it's clashing with your idea of what the music should sound like at that kind of tempo and at that kind of level of heaviness, that there are these like really densely, richly organized chords inside of that heaviness makes it feel like very disorienting and uh, and confusing.
2: It's almost like uh, like early cataclysm, but like grandcore version of it. Like, <laughs> like the chaotic kind of cacophony of it all, and the, the extremity of the vocals too. On top of that, it's I don't know. That's and maybe that's the Canadian sort of Voivod connection, the the, the totally. French Canadian sort of thing there. But yeah, it's it's interesting.
3: Yeah, um, I, th- I think I think the French Canadian thing. A lot of those bands have that. Like you mentioned, Gorguts. I feel like even Cryptopsy kind of stumble into that sort of stuff. Kind of. Without intending to, a lot of the time, it's like in the
0: DNA. Yeah. yeah, they can't escape it. You know, um I hear Dave Dave Witty's the way that he approaches drums, and I, I bet Flamornier Flemorn, has heard this Flamornier has heard an inalienable dreamless and in has thought, "Yeah, I could. I'm going to try and do better than this." And I don't, you know, whether or not he does, whatever. But that's, yeah, I, I think there's something. There's a connective tissue there. I think the other connective tissue is that like Voivod and I believe Chang talks about this is they were one of the first bands that try to do like an emotive experience lyrically through a science fiction aesthetic. Totally. Yes. And, yeah. And that's always a part of discordance axis, but it starts to really crystallize on, on Joe Ho. Yeah. Like um, the
3: other, the other big reference for that opening song vertigo index is I feel like it's very much like serial experiments lane. The idea right. of being sort of, like, subsumed into technology and spread throughout it, like, early internet kind of vibes, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I pointed out some other, like, Drone Warfare. I get a lot of that on Aperture of Pinholes, the the kind of lyrics, that, which I feel is also another kind of, like, common anime trope of, like, the swarm of robots that are coming to get you. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And in general, there's kind of this, like, cyberpunk-ish, like fear of technology fear of surveillance um this like sort of baudrillard energy to to a lot of the lyrics on on joho like a uh, panoptic i feel like is probably the most obvious reference yeah. to like that uh, gotcha. so in a certain sense it makes sense that they ended up on hydrohead considering you know aaron turner also has referenced baudrillard and his own band isis you know like panopticon is like littered with that kind of stuff
2: so give a little context to that for people that might not know the, the kind of reference you were sort of making, though, because that's interesting.
3: Oh, uh, I mean, God, m- the music student tries to explain uh, postmodern philosophy. Let's see if I can pull this off. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so is yours. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, the panopticon, it was originally uh, designed by Jeremy Bentham, who is like oh, yep. Utilita- yep. utilitarianism.
2: Yep. Yep. Yeah.
3: And his idea was like it was a prison that no longer needed guards. It would be a circular structure where there would be a single pillar in the center of the circle where a guard would stand and would be able to watch all the prisoners, but the prisoners would not be able to see the guard. Uh, And eventually this sort of system would become so self-sustaining that and the prisoners would become so well behaved because they were under constant surveillance that the guard didn't need to actually be there anymore. So, yep. you could have an empty tower and then this entire prison full of prisoners, and the prisoners are essentially uh surveilling themselves. The surveillance has become internal rather than external uh and modern are, america yes yeah, exactly <laughs> so, uh. Baudrillard's idea was taking this and saying, We already live in this state. We there all have yes. an yeah. opticon now, because yeah. in I think this is especially true on the internet and in the sort of modern surveillance state where like, are, we're tracked mostly by our data. We no longer need to have a particular person watching us. We've got all of our information just out there generally. We just do it, it ourselves. ourselves. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. police ourselves. Yeah. yeah. That's the basic idea of it. And uh, yeah, I think that there's a lot of that idea of like technology creep and the sort of like melding of human life with technology in uh in joho particularly it was interesting reading the quotes about like what his actual lyrical influences and like aims and themes that he was writing for because i didn't get that sense at all from it so it's kind of cool that like i i grossly misinterpreted what this album was about
2: (laughs) well your reads valid yeah yeah no, that was that was well done and for you uh um american tv nerds uh jeremy bentham was john locke's uh reborn character name on lost which was mm. a kind of
4: <laughs> philosophical
2: connection between the two so yeah um i found a, a quote this, this is kind of fun I, on some of our, our more recent episodes um i've went back through and found a bunch of my old metal maniacs and Terrorizers. And I happen to find that I, I had the metal ma- or the terrorizer from uh, 2000. It has Amen on the cover, and they actually interviewed disc- Discordance uh, for Inalienable. And, <laughs>
0: okay, yeah, I'd love to love to read that.
2: Yeah, it's great. And there's a there's a great little quote, kind of talking about what we were just got done talking about before from from Dave, and he says, "Funny thing is, is most of the Discordant influence comes mainly from Voivod. Voivod are are, um, are the kings." All three of us love them. The main influences for DA are basically Voivod, Creator, Napalm Death, and the Japanese energy. Other than Napalm, I don't think we were very influenced by much grindcore, especially Rob and I, as John is more the grindcore maniac. He turned me on to most of it. Yeah, there's a lot of generic grindcore about. Of course, we wanted to be different in a way, uh, but we really didn't sit down and discuss being different or deliberately breaking from the crust thing. I guess it has to do with us being totally different people and having totally different ideas. Funny thing is most of the stuff is formed out of jokes while writing, uh, just goofing around and saying, man, that would be so funny if we use that part there and we wind up using it. We draw a lot of influence from each other. I know that both John and Rob influenced me more than anything when playing with and access, they really motivate and crack the whip. So to speak, they were always pushing me to new levels, which I am grateful for. So that's where he kind of addresses the, the Voivod discordance kind of influence. It's interesting. They mentioned creator in there too. That's yeah, kind that, of, I
3: wouldn't um, have expected that. That's, that's yeah. interesting.
2: And I, I would have to pick things apart to find it, but you know uh, maybe it's like the, the unconventional drumming, you know, cause what mm. mentor was always like, what a half step behind the rest of the band at yeah, all times, right. you know, so.
1: even, I mean the early creator riffing was kind of weird too. It was yeah, kind of percussive. True. Like a lot of this is too. Yeah. Similarly,
3: like naive, you know, like they didn't quite know what they were doing in an interesting way, you know.
2: And speaking of this record and you brought up Aaron Turner before, and I know Aaron Turner is going to sort of come up uh, as we start to get into them signing with Hydrahead. But he I think you put together that kind of great quote from Aaron Turner where he says, you know, Joho had such a crazy effect on me. I got it on a whim. The cover got to me. It was very cryptic, totally mesmerized by it. At that time, I hadn't considered working with them, taking them on as a Hydra headband. When the opportunity arose, I jumped at the chance. They were a very unique band. Their music was heavy and metal oriented. The only criteria we've had is we've tended to stick to things that were heavy or metal oriented. We really like to work with artists that are the vanguard of their subgenre and have very clear artistic intent and have a very well-developed visual aesthetic. Discordance Axis is the perfect Hydra headband. And I think that's the you know, probably the gateway towards, you know, um, moving towards their their masterpiece record, I would say, mm-hmm. you know, is them kind of signing with, with Hydrahead a little bit. So um, anything else to say about, you know, Information Sniper typeface or that split the Alzheimer tune with a split um, with Plutocracy before we kind of get into the weeds here?
3: Uh, I like how Information Sniper is a song sandwich where it opens and closes with the same riff. But the yeah, they're
2: splicing two songs together almost, right? Yeah.
3: But the interesting thing is the second time it comes around, the riff is like distended and fucked up in this interesting way. Like they add an extra measure into it. So it's like right, it does it is repetition, but it's repetition with difference. So even in like an incredibly like condensed song, they're able to be like, Oh no, 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 we can we can make variations and we can show you how we can grow out these ideas in a way that uh most i feel like most grindcore bands are not that like detail oriented in their songwriting so very cool stuff in that one
0: well when you bring that up ian i i I think that's a natural segue into one of the one of the first things or one of the standout like components of the discordance axis narrative that has followed the band around, which is not just being an incredibly creative metal band and grind band in particular, but being like a a band that adopted a very postmodern, yes, but also confrontational songwriting style. And I, I think that starts with Joho, where Rob and, and Dave will write parts and sort of like, almost like in a cut up, like literary style, mm, Chang
3: kind of style. Burrows. yeah.
0: yeah Chang's sort of like the Burroughs of the group where he'll take their convention, conventional grind stuff and cut it up and okay. make them play it differently, make them play it wrong to like pursue creativity. But it, it came at like a tremendous cost because like notoriously, um, Discord and Texas breaks up, I think after every album, yes. they have a they have a breakup. <laughs> they, they these are people who have trouble working with one another. And and um I think it's if I recall correctly, it's sort of more Dave and Rob when they're doing Joho. But later it's gonna become John specifically during Inalitable Dreamless, it's going to become John as the focal point of like almost taking the two other members of the band and trying to turn them on one another to like make them counteract and use that friction to produce interesting material. Um, they're not the only band that does that. Uh, you know, Ian, I know you're a big Slipknot guy. I'm a big Slipknot guy. I notoriously like Slipknot band that uh, they kind of don't actually like each other. All yeah, they don't really the, function the time. at all. <laughs> yeah, it's the, they've weaponized their own dysfunction into a songwriting and performance engine, right?
2: I feel like second wave, like the second era of Slayers kind of like that. Those guys seem to be very businesslike, you know, during the years that they didn't really like each other. And they take like three, four years off from each other because mm-hmm. they just were like, all right, I'm over this. But then they knew that they all fit together better than separate, so they just put up with each other, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I feel
3: like, like with Slipknot, it's almost like they're leaning into their dislike. They almost like treasure that uh, sense of animosity between each other because they know that that like bleeds
0: into the art in an interesting way.
2: So it's almost um, like method to them? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. right.
0: Well, there, there does... It, it, you know discord and Texas does do joho and they have this tour i think this is the first time they go to japan maybe and um they're well received there uh but notoriously like they're a band that had trouble in a, in america finding an audience um they don't seem to like playing live and yeah. uh, not that i can blame them uh you know i mean you, we talked about how tough talk- Doing this is on Dave Witty, and he's going to pay the price for being the drummer in Discordance Axis later, as I'm sure we'll discuss. Yeah. Um, but even you know the thing that you talked about, Jason, their sort of signature move. You know, if we're going to keep the anime metaphor up, this is Discordance Axis's like big cinematic finishing move. Is the riff goes to halftime, and the drums go to double time, but they've been blasting before, right? Yeah. So he's doing a double time. Like a hyper blast, um, and that's their like that's their big moment, on on songs you can't do that like all the time, yeah, um, especially do that and then go do like another band the way the way Dave Woody was doing and he was he's like a prolific studio guy right, yeah. So, the doing Joho kind of begins to break them, and they fall apart, and. The, john almost has to go on like an apology vacation i think with rob like they they got a uh like a cabin on like the cape cod coast and they set up their pcs and played quake with one another for a week (laughs) yeah yeah very like divorced dad but (laughs) also gamer energy right and and like john sort of has to go through this process to get rob back into discordance axis to do Inalienable dreamless which they can only do because aaron turner's willing to take the chance on them and he's kind of got some clout at yeah. that at that point in time absolutely um, at that point you, you know so it, it it takes all that together to put discordance axis back together to make the Inalienable dreamless i like i don't want to like discount joho or discount ulterior um um, but you know those are worthy records in their own right but like this is this is the most sure. interesting part of the of the story of mm-hmm. of the band is how like he needs he needs to put the band back together to make it work and i think i don't even know if rob plays with them on the joho tour i think they get the other guy from he and remains as their touring guitarist if i remember correctly
2: they they did. Um, yes, I think that's what it was. Or there, there was another tour where Dave couldn't play with them, and they brought in a different drummer, too. And I can't remember which tour that was.
3: That poor um, guy. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever had to fill in
0: and play yeah, those. Yeah. Lot, buddy. They, I mean, we'll they, get into it.
2: <laughs> yeah, they address it. It's um, – who was it? Uh, oh, they bring in the Ass Suck drummer, Rob Proctor, for mm-hmm. one of the Japanese tours and stuff. And – the interviewer is like that guy sucked. And Dave's like, no, he doesn't suck. It's just, he has a different (laughs) style, you know? So I give Dave credit. He was very, diplomatic and how he handled that question you know no
0: he doesn't he doesn't suck it's just he's not willing to literally break his own body to play John Chang's fucking music
2: yeah and that's the thing like you'll hear it the people will hear it in the John Chang interview where he talks about like the training regiment and what the physically did to Dave you know I mean there's those famous stories about you know Pete Sandoval like passing out at the end of like morbid angel concerts like in a pool of sweat because he was just like fuck you know and, and this is faster. <laughs> this is much faster. Yeah. It's yeah.
3: wild. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's, it's pretty, pretty crazy stuff that we're about to sort of get into here, but um, they bring in John uh, Diova.
0: Is that how you say that? I don't know. do Diova the producer here. Um, I'm not certain. Cause I don't think he's really done anything
2: else. Yeah, I know like Bill Miller recommended uh, him. I saw in the notes there and and Mm -hmm. he he hadn't really worked with Grind before, but he helped with what, Come to
0: Grief? Yes, he worked with the band Come to Grief, but this is Uva's first, I'm going to go with Uva. This is his first producing job Ever. like can you imagine that like this is your first job as a producer it's like here you go here's john chang dave witty and rob martin yep doing their evangelion concept record good fucking luck yeah, and he even God. said
2: he even said he goes it was the most intense record i've ever recorded since then as an engineer i've run the gamut of genres from thrash to jazz and folk music and i remember after recording it bringing it back and playing it for people and they were pretty impressed even though it was a little too heavy and fast for them they thought this was the sickest tightest stuff I've ever heard if it that if even if it's not my thing. So, you know, that's I'm glad that he he had a good experience doing it. I mean, it's a great record obviously. Like he he cre- captured some magic here, you know. So, yeah, and and this him- is a
3: great calling card for a producer. It's if, if I can make this band sound good and not sound like a mess, you know, as a rookie, then you clearly know what you're doing, you know.
0: Sure. Right. It's also his idea to add this, um, you can barely hear it, but there is this sub-harmonic bass synth yep. that plays the quote-unquote bass parts in Inalienable Dreamless. And I think that adds to it sort of like new-agey, but also sci-fi audio quality. It's just such an unusual sound. And because it's like a sub-bass, it like... It doesn't have an obvious impact on you as a listener, because we don't—we're not usually keyed into like sub bass frequencies, right? This like sub bass didn't become like, in my recollection as a critic, like a watchword for music until, you know, the the trap rap, like yeah. renaissance we're yeah. in, where now like your sub bass tone is a thing people want
3: right the song is based on on the sub bass these days but like yeah like in the 90s like no one had sound systems to be able to play that stuff
0: yeah exactly exactly to pull that off you know i I think the other thing to to note about this you know recording session is um this is where like Chang gets his reputation as, and I, I love this guy's a vocalist. I love him as a lyricist. And I've listened to a lot of your interview with him, Jason. And I, I think he's a very charming, earnest, intellectual person. And I respect him with the highest degree, yeah. um, but he's got a reputation as being a, a, a um, what I guess you'd call a difficult coworker. Mm-hmm. Right. And he gets that when they're making an dreamless, um, constantly pushing rob and dave to work harder to the point where he would like hold up signs in the sound booth after their takes saying not good enough do it again right almost yep. like
3: steely dan levels of like hazing session musicians and that kind of stuff you know
2: right Sure, and there's this great quote from from Rob where he talks about, he goes, I think I hated it as much as any other recording we did. He says, uh, you know, uh, uh, Joho was hellish and we couldn't get anything right, but the inalienable dreamless was grueling three days. We weren't even halfway through and my arm felt like cement. The songs were hard to play. They weren't easy. It was the most grueling recording experiences of all of them. I vowed to never do it again. When that recording was done, I absolutely hated it. I was like, what did we do? how it sounded in my head and how it came out was just too different. It was two different sounds. It was just the result of cramming for three days. That's what we had. There was no other way we could have done it. It was very hard. So that's seems pretty diplomatic, but you can tell, you can read between the lines there and just be like, you know, it, it probably was not a fun experience. And again, it's kind of getting that, that method acting kind of aspect, you know, to recording, you know, um, the visceralness of it, you know, so
0: yeah amazing results but i'm gonna go ahead and say again anyone listening here who's in a band don't do this yeah <laughs> like this is i odds are you're not gonna get an inalienable dreamless out of it don't like terrorize and emotionally harass your co-workers just to try and make a masterpiece
2: well to use like a high school coaching metaphor there are like teams like, cause I coach cross country and there are teams that have like, like some of the bigger AA schools in Michigan that have these intense cross country programs. You'll hear about them starting with like 35 boys and they'll run the entire team into the ground. And what they're trying to sort of see is who's going to survive the season through attrition. And then they're going to put a really good team in the state meet, but half the people are injured. And it's like, hmm. is that the dream of high school athletics? You know, like, is that a, a price worth paying that, like, you have these people that are in a state of misery just to sort of achieve that? And it's, it's you know, you're you're rolling the dice with that because you could, the program could blow up and all those kids quit on you because they say, fuck this shit, this is not worth it. And that's right. kind of what kind of happens to this band afterwards. Like, eh, I think we're done, you know?
3: Yeah, so, it reminds me a lot, just as like a basketball fan of like Tom Thibodeau who coached the Chicago Bulls. Bulls oh so like, yeah. Drove those teams into dust. I mean, sure they won sixty games, but then like Derrick Rose blew out his knee. I was to say
2: know. destroyed Derrick Rose. Yeah, you know.
3: Yeah. or Lou Aldang needed a spinal tap, and like all of that sort of. Jesus
0: stuff. Christ.
3: Like, yeah, it's it's like sure you get some temporary rewards, but is it worth it in the long run? So to Joseph's points, ab- absolutely. If you're in a band and you're listening to this, please do not do this to your drummer. Please. Yeah.
1: Do. Well, if you want to we- read the horrified history, Repulsion did the same thing to Dave Grave yeah that's true <laughs> true and see how long that lasted you know yeah one yeah. record yep
0: <laughs> well and now well now dave witty's got a good career um but and i i want to be able to attribute this but unfortunately i don't have the issue in my house so i couldn't get it but i believe decibel did a cover story on uh pig destroyer making book burner so this is 2012 right I think so. yeah um yeah and for like Pignature is a band that notoriously has like really long breaks between records and it was a known fact at the time that I need to look up the band really quick why did I not do this as I was prepping my comment because I'm a dipshit please cut all of this right so like no, no editing uh, we won't no we don't we- edit anything <laughs> I've got a interview right so Brian Brian Harvey was their original uh, not their original drummer, but he's was the drummer for like the first Pink three went, or
1: something. The first
0: yeah. th- something like that, right? And it was known before Bookburner came out that Brian was out of the band. And I remember there being like the discourse was, get Dave Witty, get Dave Witty, get Dave Witty, and there's like as I recall, I think a whole section in that picture cover where they where they discuss why they did not get Dave Witty. Um, and the answer is that he can't do the blasts anymore because he's, his arms just can't take it. Yeah. He like hurt himself permanently while making, and then touring behind this album. And yeah. it's why there's never going to be a, a, with original members, at least discordance Saxis reunion. Yep. I yeah. don't think he's physically capable of doing it a- anymore. Even
2: John me mentions that in the interview, you know, he kind of confirms it, you know, so,
4: absolutely,
2: Ugh. yep. But well, let's get into it a little bit. Let's talk about some of the songs we're going to hear uh, on Inalienable, and then we'll kind of come back and talk about the sort of the lyrics and, and Eva and some of that stuff. But yeah. um, we're going to kick off with Castration, right? And that kicks off the whole record, and it's obviously got the, you know, the Dave Velocity and John screaming, all that sort of stuff. And I remember reading, I think it might have been around this song, that, you know, John, didn't he burst blood vessels on his face recording some of these songs because he was, like, screaming so intensely? If Give the man that.
0: credit. He'll hurt himself, too.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. He's an equal opportunity offender, you know. <laughs> so, um, I mean, Rob's doing this kind of like proto-converge type riff in the opening half that I think is really cool. It's like Converge and voivod kind of like jamming together in some kind of weird sort of, you know, composite. And then there's, you know, the kind of thrashy punk patterns before they sort of hold out for this. the only thing I could kind of equate it with is like almost like an obituary kind of sustained sound before they lock into like kind of a Bill Steer, Jesse Pintado kind of riff at the very end. It's a, Mm. it's, it's cool. It's kind of like, it goes through all these different parts. And what's so fascinating about all these songs is we're talking about like a minute, minute and a half. And yet there's these little mini movements in every single song that we're going to hear in this set, you know, it's, it's pretty incredible. The ideas that they pack into such a succinct kind of, you know, set of songs, you know, attention
3: to detail. It all comes down to that. Like these songs are so like note by note organized. It's unbelievable. Yep.
2: Well, I mean, when you, when you, you know, write your notes Slayer plus four, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's, 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 yeah. Voyavod times seven, you know, yeah, it's, it's very, very or, organized and speaking of Voyavod, you know, and by the way, jump in on any comments on these songs. I'm just kind of going through my notes here.
3: I've got most of what I have to say about a lot of these songs are lyrical. So I'll, I'll okay. say it for second. Yeah.
2: Um, pattern blue, you know, speaking of Voivod, it's like, to me, that's like a nothing face kind of riff, you know, kind of ripping into sort of a grind kind of thrash kind of riff at the same time, especially in that first minute or so. And then you almost get like a, noise sludge kind of thing happening like a bottom out riff you know really interesting stuff it's like a
1: napalm fear emptiness despair kind of a yeah that's the noisy part of it for
2: sure yeah very very cool and the interesting part is why rob's doing all that john and dave are kind of like mediating the cacophony you know like they're they're like they're almost on both sides like control like a sorcerer like keeping the spell to sort of together almost in a way and um I said in this song in particular, there's this sustained scream that John does that to me, I I mentioned it before John Cale's kind of viola um, where he's sort of doing this sort of sick sustained scream. And Dave is doing this really sick fill around the 35 second mark. And it's like three different songs like playing at the same time. And it's, (laughs) it's, it's really incredible. And I know, I don't know if any of you guys have seen that new velvet underground documentary um, that,
3: um, todd haynes was it Todd he Haynes did did it. yeah yeah it's it's good you know what's that um,
2: on uh i think apple plus oh, that's, okay. might be I didn't see it. yeah um but they talk about how when they would play a lot of velvet underground sounds in those early years the song would end and then nobody would move for like five or ten seconds because all the dissonant sort of stuff that they were doing and all this like atonal things like people's brains had to like catch up to it before they actually reacted to it, like physically or by clapping or cheering. And there was almost this like surrealness at some of those early velvet underground shows where it was like all the noise and feedback and chaos would like end. And then everybody was like in a trance state. And I almost feel like, again, we'll, we'll never unfortunately get a chance to see these guys live. I wonder if like, it's almost so fast that like, yeah, you could mosh to it. But for me, I'd probably be just standing in the back, like just staring. I, you know i don't know that i don't know how i would react to this kind of music hearing it i think i would just kind of like try and take it all in and watch what they were doing on stage and that would be how i kind of interact with it and this is kind of a song like that that, that reminds me of that you know um anyways <laughs> just my, my my two cents on that so um and then we're gonna go into angel present and by the way cut in if you want to talk about any you know lyrics or whatever but to me, like this is a song that when I hear it, this is where I understand exactly what he meant by like sort of grindcore version 3.0, you know, the song's so fast and punishing. Like I almost like, you almost like pass out. Like if you're really like trying to like stay with it, you know? And, and the idea that this and Jane Doe were like coming out around the same time and both were like really going for that. Like how much can we attack a listener and like, take them on an emotional and and psychological journey. It's um, it's pretty cool, you know? And then there's finally that moment of reprieve at like where it stutters in the last five seconds. And it's such a release moment. You're like, Jesus Christ. Like, what did I just go through? You know?
3: Yeah. I think the Jane Doe comparison is a good one because I think pig destroyer sort of falls into this too, where it's like the experience of listening to it and the experience of reading the lyrics are Like kind of you get to listen to the album twice almost where Mm -hmm. like you have the experience of these songs hitting you purely as like sonic objects and all the sensations you're describing and then you have like the second experience of then reading the lyrics to all these songs and having like a completely different frame of mind around it and then there's the third listen where it's like with those lyrics in mind combine that with like the physical sensation that you get now from listening to the music and that's when it becomes you know, some other level of, uh, of artistic feeling, you know?
2: For sure. Yeah. Um, speaking yeah. of lyrics, Ian, do you want to take the lead on end of rebirth? Because end of
3: rebirth. Okay. Do these I are
2: it? the lyrics I was going to read out loud. Like I don't often do that, but this in particular, these lyrics really fucking grab me when I'm thinking about like Jane Doe. And I'm thinking about mm-hmm. like catharsis and this emotional journey that we're sort of going on there. Um, I've got them up in front of me, but I know you were going to talk about lyrics. Yeah. This
3: is, one. this is not, of the ones that references ava but oh okay and um, if well,
0: rebirth is ian
3: this, well okay yes like the title does but it doesn't have no any-
0: the lyric the uh, we, do you Joseph, want
3: the- go for it, go for it, it's all you.
0: Okay, the lyrics to End of Rebirth are, at last I heard these words from you, but they make me disgusted with myself. Life choked back into you with ambivalence. Familiar closed tarts conceal their loneliness as best they can. When together, even further apart, open your heart. As wide as the sky, this pain is worse than death. I just oh. ran away. Lonely, yes, lonely, but you can't always rise from the dead it's about the end of end of evangelion really
3: yeah yeah, yeah it's right.
0: choking life back in the it's him yeah. and oscar at the end On of the, the world yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: i yeah. just saw it as like a personal thing but maybe it is and it isn't it's it both. both it's both yeah. yeah
0: it's it's both like we're gonna have to listen to the music and then get into this whole block of music so for what it's worth listeners i'm the one who picked which songs to play in which organ which blocks this whole block of music I did sneak is sort a of couple like...
2: in, by the way i did okay. I, I amended a couple because i was like I, this, I always do that to mark so i had to do it's it okay guys, so
0: <laughs> the idea behind this block was it would be sort of like the evangelion suite
2: this is the su- okay cool that's cool i'm glad you you did that i would have had no idea unless you pointed that out yeah
3: hence why i was saying i'm like this is the lyric section for me
2: (laughs) got it got it um do you want to wait and talk about the eva stuff in the next set then and some of the lyrics of what we just kind of heard
3: yeah let's get to these tunes man i think people need it
2: well let's so okay so yeah we can talk about the music of end of rebirth and third children we sort of get back but let's kind of get into this these these five tunes from inalienable here we've got castration right pattern blue um angel present the end of rebirth and then we're going to end with the third children enjoy
5: i don't really think like i don't really think that a lot of bands that identify as grind don't feel like grind to me but it's you know everybody's got their own definition you for know? sure so so i mean i guess you know you what, guys whatever are like purified you, want to, you,
2: want to, you know
5: <laughs> yeah well I, I mean i like like i really like three four's fours first record the, the the ep that max uh from um uh, uh plutocracy put out uh it, it, that was great. I remember we—I got the demo from them. We were we played their first show in Tokyo with them, and they blew. They were awesome. They were that was an incredible show, and they were they just kicked, killed it. And I, I like the singer's previous band, Eroded. I was a big fan of them, but like, holy shit! Like the first three two four demo was just absolutely flooring. Um, and they—I would say that was like one of the last grindcore records I actually bought. Got it. Okay. Like actually, that, that I thought of as a grindcore record um, because. I mean there's a lot of good fast music out there but like I mean I got into black metal because I thought like black metal was more grindcore than grindcore was you know like first time I heard Battles in the North I'm like there it is that's what I'm looking for, you know, like like the whole record is blast beats or or or, or, or really fast double bass, and then like that's it. Like there's there, there's the one lame song at the end where they, they they do the like the I'm weepy like raven ballad thing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but the the rest of it is just like the whole record is like you know it's yeah. I mean, you know, Bounce in the North isn't even that fast, really. You know, like it's a little bit faster than Repulsion. I don't even think most of that record is as fast as Napalm Death. But sure, like, sure. it's fast the whole time, and it just it just goes on and on and being fast. And that record has a lot of like layered emotions in it. I mean, maybe it was because it was one of the first black metal records I heard. Um, all of the all of the, the picking and the like the different like it feels atmospheric. It actually feels like sorrow and sure. like despair and like haunting when I listen to that record. And I'm like, man, what a, what an incredible record. And you know, the other Immortal records are fine, but they feel more like studio metal records to me like you know yeah i I enjoy some of the later stuff for sure like the new record came out and the first song i was like oh my god the first song is amazing i hope the whole record sounds this way yeah the whole record doesn't sound this way you know it's like it's really only the first song that's just like you know six minutes of like straight like blast beats and that's that's what i was looking for sure um so, so, with the Enable Dreamless, in terms of its legacy, because uh, that was a, a, a weird detour, uh, the Enable Dreamless's leg- legacy, I don't know. You know, like I, I'm consistently surprised how how popular and like I don't know if influential is the right word, but it seems to be influential with a, a certain kind of people. Um, you know, like a lot of people really hate it. <laughs> uh, a lot of people really don't like what that record stood for or or was like when it came out Maximum Rock and Roll gave it like minus 10 out of 10 you know like they hated it and and I think I think the review was something to the effect of like some pretentious douchebag living in his parents basement put out this piece of shit fuck them (laughs) and fuck their lame music and blah 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 no one cares I was like oh wow okay roger that
2: (laughs) yeah holy shit
5: Um, yeah but Terrorizer Magazine really liked it and that was the first time we'd really gotten any press from, from like a I don't know mainstream music magazine so I don't, I don't know what I, – I guess I can't really appreciate what these things may mean to other people because I made them. Sure. So they're going to always mean more to somebody else than they're going to mean to me. Like I know I love that record. I feel like Joho and The Enable Dreamless are the best two DA records. Um, and depending on what mood I'm in, I like one or the other. Um, there's a, there's, Those are very personal records for me. There's a lot of personal anguish in both of them. Um, I know that when we were performing the Inalible Dreamless, I didn't like to play that record because it brought up a lot of terrible feelings when I would do it. Um, and like, like, like really, really, like, it it felt awful to play those songs. Like it, it, it felt like, like physically terrible. Like I would be sick, you know, like feel like exhausted emotionally and like like nauseated when we would finish a performance. Cause it, cause I, I put, we didn't play a lot of uh, shows to support those, those records. So like I could really go like all out. I really dredged up those feelings and put them into the, the, the songs and the performances when we did them. Um, I, I don't know why it resonates with so many people now um, possibly because people are understand more of what we were talking about now because when we did that record, like, Evangelion, I don't even think, had been mass-released in the United States. Yeah. Um, and, like, there's, like, references to, like, Armored Core and um, uh, Use of Weapons as an E&M Banks book. Uh, like, there's all kinds of different, like, little notes. In that, But, like, the whole thing, there's a whole song that references Watership Down on that record. And I think, like, less than two or three people have ever picked up on that. You know? Because uh, Watership Down was this incredible book that I re- always remembered from being a kid, and I probably read it like forty times. Um, and and like the stuff, those like nuanced things, those little subtle things that are in the record throughout it. I think people maybe over time are starting to figure those things out, and maybe maybe the record has more meaning to them because of that, or maybe they just like the sound, and it's like it, it is a different sounding grind record. Like sure. I don't think there's any grind record that really sounds like the Inevitable Dreamless. And I and I dare say that no, there's not really one that sounds like Joho either. You know, I mean, I, I feel like they're very distinct, distinct sounding albums. And in a in a not very there's not a lot of people in the genre, right? There's not a lot of grind bands out there, right? Or at
4: least, yeah.
5: I mean, today it's a little bit different. But but like when we were making those records, it was literally like Hell Nation, Asuk, uh Us. Uh, Analcon, if you consider them grind, I mean, I kind of felt like they were. Yeah.
4: yeah um,
5: I do. Are, you, are you thinking
2: uh, of I American mean, bands?
5: <laughs> well, I, I mean, even, even like SOB by that point sounded more like, like a death metal band. They, sure. they, they had gone a different way. Um,
2: Brutal Truth was way past their early years of, of that kind of grind, you I, know?
5: I mean, I don't, I never thought of Brutal Truth as a grind band at all. I, I, I mean, they, they had, they, I, 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 when I was younger, I, hanging out with seth i was a really bad influence on me in many regards because like uh seth absolutely hated those guys with all his heart but like he also was friendly with them so so like i, I spent a lot of time like talking with him and like building up a real dislike of those guys yeah even though i, I had no, i didn't know them right like i had no reason to dislike them um but like Their music and and their success and kind of like their their presentation was uh, like, I don't want to say offensive, that's the wrong word, but it felt so shallow to me. And I was really upset that, that the genre that I was so passionate about was being sort of taken over by these really overproduced bands that I didn't feel like. I, I didn't feel like the music didn't connect with me and it wasn't what I thought grind was like, you know, they were really into drugs was a big thing for those guys. Right. they sure. were really into to weed. That was like the diametric opposite of me. Like I wanted focus and control and like, you know, like, like honesty and, and, like, something that was so raw and powerful. And I didn't get that from those Eric bands at that point. I mean, it wasn't just Brutal Truth. It was, like, everybody. Like, that third Carcass record, I hated it. Like, I, I remember getting it, and I, I actually hated it, and I couldn't believe. I was like, what the fuck is this? This is not the band that I, I – this is not the record I thought I was getting. And, I mean, I felt that way about the the second Tomb record, too. Um, it, was, it was a huge letdown for me because it was like Eric was going into a more – I mean, all of the Eric bands were going – they were going into a more mainstream sound, like more conventional, like structured sound. Uh, I mean, I'm not calling them like you know, pop bands or anything, but like they they were, they were moving away from what had drawn me to them in the first place. And, you know, the inalable Dreamless – I mean, like I don't know. I, I really don't know what it means to people and why, why it would still mean something to people because if I look at it, I'm like, okay – that's as honest as I could be about how I felt about my life up to that point. Like, and I'm talking about it through a metaphor of like video games and books and, you know, I'm a fill in the blank, right? Like all of this like nerd culture stuff that wasn't really popular at all. And people, people who were sort of our peers in America didn't understand, like nobody understood that knew what it was, cared about it at all. Right. Like, you know, I remember I met Trey at this funny story. I met Trey as at a show, uh, I loved Morbid Angel for years. And uh, Formula's Fade of the Flesh, my favorite Morbid Angel record. I, record. I, I saw them on that tour a bunch of times. And I they played at a place in Jersey called the Birch Hill. And I read his thanks list on the record, and he was talking all about like anime, like uh, Robotech, and like, um, yeah. he was really into like like anime. So I, I intentionally wore one of my Japanese anime shirts uh, to that show, and he saw me in the crowd and came up to me and started talking. And we didn't talk about music at all. We just talked about, like, <laughs> Japanese stuff and video games. Yeah. And I was like, wow, okay, so this guy gets me. But, like, you know, I, and I love Morbid Angel, but, like, you know, that's not that's not his music, right? His music is that sort of, like, you know, like, extreme, like, death metal. Like, he, you know, Trey, Trey is one of the most unique creators, uh in music for like for like metal like I mean he's, he's been going for like, like over 30, 40 years now oh, sure, 30 yeah. years at least right? Like, yep. when did Mormon Angel start like 1981 or something? yeah like
2: uh, 80, 85 86 probably
5: yeah oh was it that was it that late? I mean I guess I,
2: Angel of Disease the, the you know Abominations and stuff yeah that was like eighty. so they were probably around in like 83, 84 you know like in the demo yeah. phase you know
5: yeah because so. yeah, I, I mean I, I remember seeing them on their first tour to New Jersey I was so excited that they were touring Um, and like, I was like, I think I was like 16 years old or 15 years old. Like it was, it was an effort to get to the show. And I was so excited that they were, that they were playing and that I got to see them. And then they got signed to earache and I was even more excited. It's like, Oh my God, they're on earache. This is amazing. Ah, you know, like I can actually, we're going to get a Morbid Angel record. This is so fucking awesome. Um, and like, like altars of madness still speaks to me, right? Formulas fatal to the flesh still speaks to me. like, those, those records have a lot of meaning for me, even though I don't even know any of the lyrics, and I don't really like I don't I don't care about what they're saying. Like, sure. but the music means yeah. a lot to me. Um, with the Little Dreamless, I'm not sure. What- connects with people is it the music is it the lyrics is it the package is it the packaging like you know there was that yeah. was a, a another big change right like we, we talked to hydra and i said i don't want to do a cd box i want to do a dvd package because i want the, a different aspect ratio for my my package and like that was a hell of a conversation let me tell you
2: <laughs> <laughs> i bet i bet with Aaron, yeah so
5: well, it, it was so different and like like you know like even to this day when we were rep- printing the stuff willetips distributors didn't want to take the dvd boxes I was like, "Well, fuck you. We're not. Don't put them out on CD because that's what these records look like."
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it sounds like you. You know, I think maybe people caught up to the vision of what you were doing. I mean, it's almost like I don't want to compare it to like method acting, but it's almost like you you took it so seriously in a in an appropriate way. And sometimes I think you hear about people like that live the character and if other people that are around them are not taking it as seriously as, like, it sounds like you were, it's almost like, you know, people don't get why why you're always in character or why you care so much about it because to them maybe it's, like, a performance or a job or it's not, like, it's not coming from, like, a core place. Like you said, like, with Brutal Truth, they're just sort of, like, not going through the motions, but they're just sort of almost, like, playing these kind of characters uh, or, or whatever. And I think maybe people... Initially, probably that's one of the reasons maybe they were turned off from what you were doing, perhaps, because it was so pure and it was almost like people didn't know how to like wrap their heads around it. But I think through the last couple of decades, people have sort of caught up and have begun, like you said, to unpack and, uh, and depuzzle all of these different things that were sort of built in. Maybe I I don't know. that's that's just speculation on my part. It's, it's hard to say, you know, why that why it's resonated or why people, you know, like decibels come to you with Hall of Fame and you know, all these other kind of things going on. But, uh, I mean, I think when you're putting that much, like, you know, I, I mean, something where you're you're really putting your heart and soul, I mean, you, you talked about how you, it was a struggle for you to even perform those songs live sometimes. Like, people are going to eventually catch on to that. You know what I mean? Even if it's not in the, like, here and now, like, it, as those decades, the honesty's there, right? Like, you know, p- no one can listen to that album and think, like, oh, these guys are just putting this on. You know, and I think maybe even if they didn't get it at first, eventually people caught up and appreciated the 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 sort of visceral honesty of what you guys were producing there and the singularity of it too. You know, um, that's that's my insight. But again, I'm not a grind expert per se. You know, um, I was buying grind records in that era, and I had you guys, um, but I didn't actually have your earlier stuff because I didn't know how to get it at that point i don't know it was like a weird entryway i i I was kind of coming at it for like death metal and doom metal and then backing my way into grind around that time in the late 90s early 2000s so i was kind of like it sounds like you were almost coming up through the grind punk aesthetic a little bit with it as it was evolving and so um i was kind of coming in the other door and then kind of moving backwards towards grind or something you know so um I don't know. Those are just... I don't have an answer to it, but I think it is definitely a question worth sort of pondering because that that album resonates. You know, there's just something about it maybe because of how singular it is Um, and and even the albums prior, how singular they are, you know? Um, I mean, do you guys know, like, the grand total of music that you guys have made in total? I mean, it's like, what, two hours, two and a half hours of music maybe total? I don't even know.
5: Yeah, it's probably in the two-hour ballpark because I think... Uh, original sound version is I think like just shy of 60 minutes. Okay. And then the Joho CD, well, if you don't count the 15 minutes of Dead Space <laughs> before the, the last, the secret track plays, yeah. um, I think that is like, you know, that's, that's, that's like 30 minutes, maybe 30, 32 minutes. And then the inalienable dreamless with the Ikaruga and Berserk, uh, tracks that we did with the three, two, four split. Those yeah. are, you know, maybe, maybe just shy of 30. So we're probably clocking in around two hours total. work, right? Like I was out of college, and I was I was in the real world, and I was actually getting more life experience. Like I traveled to a couple of different countries at that point, and had had like some deeper human relationships. And it it occurred to me that like maybe I was wrong about a lot of stuff early on, and uh, maybe I should not. I shouldn't be like spouting off and like talking about like 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 things I didn't know about as much, right? And like, but what I did understand were were the were, were were like like you know the world of like video games and the world of like anime and how those things were metaphors for things in life and 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 I could use those things. Uh, they seemed to they seem to be the, the way that I was going to express myself uh, because I, my, my, in terms of my actual writing, probably my biggest influence was Philip K. Dick. For the first probably like I don't know five or six years of Discords access, like like I was really into Philip K. Dick. I had every book he wrote. I, I studied him. I read his stuff repeatedly. Um, you know, I found him to be a fantastic author with incredible insights into the world. And he, he used science fiction as a mechanism to to deliver a lot of those insights, similar to a lot of the other stuff I just mentioned, right? Um, so 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 it was kind of a natural thing to switch over to those things at a certain point as part of maturing and you know the inalienable dreamless as i'm i'm guessing we're going to get to was really directly inspired after i saw evangelion yep because evangelion was uh when i saw it the first the first the first time i saw it uh i saw it actually on the joho tour in japan i saw kids wearing the merchandise and I like RMA, so I was like, "Hey, what is that? That that's new. I don't I don't know the series. Like, what is it?" Because everybody has it on and they're like, "Oh, Evangelion, you got to go check it out. You got it. You got to see it. It's incredible. The movie's in the theater." And I'm like, "Oh shit. Okay, great." So, you know, I I went to the movie theater in Osaka. We had a day off and I was like completely blown away by Evangelion: Death and Rebirth. And to this day, it's probably one of my favorite films of all time in terms of like what it communicates, like barely understanding Japanese at that point uh, and not being even remotely close to being like fluent in it now. Like I still understand that movie when I watch it. Like I don't even need the subtitles. Like I get the movie. And after I saw that movie, I thought, okay, so this is what it actually looks like when you actually just put everything on the table and say like, this is me. This is who I am. And and like this is this is what this is what it cost me to be the person I am. And these are the, the the mistakes that I've made, and, and this is what it cost me in terms of other people, my relationship with other people. Um, this is what it cost me in, in terms of relationships with myself. Uh, I, I mean, Evangelion is incredibly challenging work, right? It's an incredibly mature work, and arguably one of the better works about the human condition. And and I'm talking about the original series and the original films now, not the not the new stuff. Sure. Um, so so like the Inalible Dreamless is a direct outpouring of like seeing uh, Hideaki Anno put basically cut his soul out and, and put it into this series for the world to see. And I'm like, OK, I, I should be able to do that because this is the this is the most important work that I've seen in years. Like there's very there's very few things that that I've like been as passionate about as Evangelion. Um and I wanted to do something that was that important in what in my world, right? Like what I was capable of doing, which is not produce an anime series because <laughs> I am like a twenty something uh, tech art guy and <laughs> I don't have any of the ability to do that. But like that's where I'm going. I'm just I like set my compass for north and I'm and I'm headed in that direction,
2: you know? Sure. Well, I guess that that leads me to the question that Joe and Ian um, wrote, because I think you already touched on it. But I'm going to read their question verbatim the way they wrote it. And you can can sort of touch on whatever you didn't just cover in that previous answer. But um, basically, they just said, hey, we just finished a 30-hour long deep dive into EVA. Uh, A series that we both hold near to our hearts. Judging by your lyrics and the way that Eva has formed an aesthetic throughout your other projects, it seems like you have a a similar relationship to it. We're not alone either. The series seems to have some innate ability to touch people emotionally and foster a lifelong or decades-long devotion among people, even those who don't have a particular affinity for anime or animation in general what about Eva drew you into it? What continues to draw you into it? And why do you, and what do you think is the source of its power or the means by which it continues to have this profound impact on people? So, um, yeah, so that's his question. That's their podcast. So I'm going to let you run with that in whatever direction you want to, based on what you already kind of covered in the previous uh, answer.
5: I gotcha. Okay. Evangelion for me is the definitive work of the human condition. it, it gets into all of the complexities of human relationship, um, fathers and, uh, and, and sons, sons and, and mothers. Um, you know, first relationships, like the relationship, the strained relationships between boys and girls as they're becoming adults. The responsibilities that are that are that are put upon us, and what it what it what it costs us to bear those responsibilities, and like like the courage or the strength or 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 the What's a better way of saying it? The sort of resolve at which you approach something that maybe you don't want to do, but you have to do. Yeah. And and the cost of when you don't do it. Like e- Evangelion really is, is about all of those things. It, it's not really about you know robots and, and like and angels and and war and like co- you know human human ambition and catastrophe. That's the plot of the show. But what it's actually about is is this, this this deeper human experience, and you know, Otto wrote Evangelion. He he, I my understanding is he after the completion of like uh, I think it was Gunbuster, he fell into kind of a depression and and sort of disappeared for like a year or two. And while he was away, like wrestling with like all of this stuff in his life. He wrote Evangelion, and when he came back, he had this series. And uh, I mean, it's an incredibly dark series. You know, it's not—it's not consistently dark. It has like moments of relief, which is part of what makes it so believable. Like, it's not just all despair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are trying their hardest, but like, people are also falling down a lot. And P- and 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 there's so many things in motion, like the resentment of a father and his son over over his wife dying. And like losing his wife and his son living because he loved his wife more and like you know the the the, the not the the, uh, the inability of his son to ever really reconcile that and reconcile his relationship with his father at all it's so complex and it doesn't hold your hand with anything and it's it's such a mature work i mean that's what attracts me to it like one of the things i i, I don't care for in my storytelling or fiction or whatever, I don't look. I don't look for something that's going to hold my hand and treat me like I'm I'm 12 years old. I'm not looking for that at this point in my life, and I and I haven't been looking for that in a long time. Um, I mean, quite frankly, I don't know if I was ever looking for that. Uh, Evangelion, specifically. I, I, it, it, it means different things to different people I think and it, which is which is a really powerful powerful thing right like it, because it because it doesn't hold your hand it, you can take different things out of it which is really exciting right like, like it can affect people in radically different ways And that in itself like something that, that that forces you to explore something about yourself and reflect upon it and possibly maybe change your life or change your attitudes about something. is is incredibly powerful and and very, very, like, I don't know if cathartic is the right word, but very, very few things that are created have that impact, especially, especially in Western culture, which is Western storytelling seems to really revolve around narcissism and like sort of endless loops that go nowhere, right? Because like, you know, when I think of Western, Western entertainment, I mostly think of like uh you know like sitcom style stories or soap operas like these stories that go on forever but never have any resolution sure um you know they have, they have there's no there's nothing really you're learning or, or or experiencing from them because nothing has there's no consequences for anything because the thing is just going to keep going on and on and on and on forever right like there's yeah. no like like the, like the end of MASH was like a huge thing because they finally got to the end of this incredible story uh, and, like, the ending, you know, because mash, MASH is a lot like Evangelion in some ways in that it has a lot of, like, highs and lows. Like, there's a lot of comedy in MASH, but MASH is really fucking dark. Like, MASH is a heavy, sure. heavy show. Well,
2: right? I'm I'm like drawn I, to I, stuff like Buffy and Angel, which I think also people have told me has some similarities uh, to Evangelion, and, again, I haven't do- dove deep into it, but Joe assures me that if I'm a, a fan of, like... <laughs> the darkness and the consequentialness and the tonal changes that like shows like that have you know that i might i might be a fan so um yeah so i relate to that because i i don't like being spoon fed stuff either i'm also a um i teach film classes in addition to to um history so that's my other major so i'm i'm you know i'm an, i'm into lynch and and all this sort of non-linear non-traditional you know stuff that's going to complicate things and not just give you easy answers and platitudes and things like that so yeah, it sounds yep. like that's what you're kind of what what appeals to you about that in a, in a certain sense, you know.
5: Yeah, it, well, it's just so honest. Evangelion Evangelion is is an incredibly honest work. Whereas, like, you know, like I'm gonna make make a, a random sort of like left, le- hop into another lane. So Go the ahead. first Pokemon series is an incredible incredible series. Most people, I don't think a lot of people appreciate how deep it is. But basically, it's the story of a boy becoming a man. Uh, And when he gets, but the most important lesson he learns after all the stuff he does in that first series is that he loses and that it was okay to lose and that he needed to work harder. And that was the whole message of Pokemon, right? Like that, that the journey was important. Like, like the Pokemon weren't just his tools. They were his friends. And like, he, he shouldn't treat them like slaves. He should treat them like, like equals and like friends. And like, he had relationships that he developed with them. And, you know, they all fought for him as hard as he fought for them, and they all lost together. No matter how hard they tried, and like he actually lost to his friend even, and in, in, in the in, when it came down to it. So, and, and then that that kid also would would lose in the next episode. So, having these like kind of like 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 more. Like it's not just like you get to the end and like like Luke Skywalker does find peace, right? Like like that's that's not like the that's not really the ending that I'm looking for, right? Like and that that was like a big thing with Evangelion, right? Like if if, if you get to the end of the series, it's not clear if Shinji has found peace after after the after he kills Kaoru. But in the film, the the death and rebirth, and then the end of Evangelion, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear he didn't find peace, right? Like like he pretty much un- he destroys the planet. And wipes out the entire world <laughs> at, the, at the end of the uh, spoiler warning. Right? Um, he, he, he. You know, he, he destroys civilization and like all humanity, and prevents. He actually prevents the rebirth of the human species at the end. Right? He literally scatters the energy out into the universe, and it's just him and Asuka at the end. I don't know if it's streaming on YouTube. It's actually kind of hard to find them because they were never released here on Blu-ray. And, like, I think there were DVDs made by, like, A&E, but they go for, like, $500 a box set because it's, like, it's this incredible sci-fi series. And it was a big influence for Hideaki Anno and a lot of the early anime guys because it was such a heavy show. Got like, it. Like, UFO okay. was a dark fucking show. Like, it was all about sacrifice and, like, like basically a war that they were losing, and I mean like Warhammer 40k I remember when that came out that was another thing the first cover of Warhammer 40k wasn't like the Imperium being triumphant and conquering the universe it was the last stand of this like platoon of space Marines who were surrounded by orcs and they were about to get wiped out you know it was Custer's last stand and like that's where we were starting our story got it and like 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 with with uh with something like uh Evangelion or or um and, and Evangelion clearly had a huge impact on um uh, the Inalienable Dreamless, uh, as, as did a number of other other <laughs> other series, uh, but like, like like the Gridlink stuff. You know, if you want to carry that on to that, I, if I'm not cutting off your next no, question. Yeah, like, like, I, I
2: was I was just gonna ask before we go to Gridlink, because that's my le- next question. But I guess you know, okay. as we sort of wrap up, you know, directly Inalienable. I guess mm-hmm. as you look back on that now, you know, 20 years later or so. W- where do you see that album's kind of musical legacy today within the grind world, the metal world, or just the, the world of music in general? Like, um, I mean, I know the the recordings of it took a pretty visceral toll, but are you able to sort of like separate your memories of like the production of the album to like, you know, how you think of it today and and things like that or. Well, well, the
5: Inalienable was the least miserable of all the records. Okay. That's good.
4: Okay.
2: So yeah. Um,
5: (laughs) At least for me, it was the least miserable. We didn't get into any big fights, and we had a good time actually recording the record. Um, and we, and again, that speaks to like how much prep we did going into that one. But like in terms of a legacy.